Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. The Hagman and Hagman Report. Saddle for battle, folks. Welcome to this episode of the Hagman and Hagman Report. We're coming to you live from our radio and television studios here in beautiful northwest Pennsylvania, where we broadcast every weeknight, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Global Star Radio Network. It's the place to be, Global Star. Such luminaries as Dr. Ted Brower, Russ Dizdar, others as well. Simulcast on Blog Talk Radio, and you can watch us live and by archive on our YouTube channel. As you're doing now, an article uh, I put an article up uh, in the uh, submitted an article to Canada Free Press, folks. Uh, you can comment on that article. Pillows, pickles, <laughs> and Hillary Clinton. No, that's not the title, but it's all about uh, it's all about the smoke and mirrors that is engaging us or entrancing the public and in, in including the Christian public. Isn't that so? Don't forget, folks, we've got two separate websites, HagmanReport.com, Hagman and Hagman.com. Tonight, first two segments, we are going to be joined by, graciously joined by Chuck Baldwin, author, pastor, speaker, politician. Well, not really a politician. First two hours. Yes, yes. He is a, he, he is well known to those conservatives out there with a capital C as having certain values that that are consistent with ours, with us. And uh, he published an article on his website, ChuckBaldwinLive.com, that uh, he wrote, Obsession with with Prophecy, with Bible Prophecy. The devil loves it. Man, I read that article, and I don't think I've agreed any more with anyone else, but that article was fabulous. You, you know, until he comes, we have a divine mandate to take care of business. He writes in pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, complete rapture, partial rapture, no rapture, and on and on and on. When it comes to our duty to take care of business, it it don't matter. And, of course, he did not write don't. It doesn't matter. We all have the same duty, folks. We've got to show up. We can win on the numbers. And, and I have been saying this, pounding the desk, throwing things at the camera. Eric, the tech's been ducking. It's just been, look, we've got to take care of business. Now, you don't believe that? You want to sit and argue uh, about not taking care of business? You want to sit and argue about the definition of Romans 13? I think Chuck Baldwin has written a definitive book on Romans 13, as Joe is holding that book Got up Got a here. copy right here. That's right. Romans 13, yeah. the true meaning of submission. And I'm going to tell you something. We are not, as Christians, we are not called to be wimps. I've, I've said that before. We are not called to watch our wives be ravaged by the enemy. We are not called to be idiots, and, and, and we're not called to be stuck on stupid. And, and you know what? Christians need to hear this because you're not hearing it from the pulpits. You're not hearing it from the other, other radio show hosts. You're not hearing it from the TV people. You're not hearing it anywhere. No, and you're Quit right. being stuck on stupid. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. And it's because there is a fine line between what we are called and supposed to do and when we're supposed to take a back seat or actually submit. 
and I think the pastors, most of them, as well as many of the congregation who don't read the Bible, who don't pray to the Lord and ask for discernment, they don't understand Okay, where the line is? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? I, we have we have we have uh, Chuck Baldwin on. Yes, we do. Oh, okay. I, I didn't want to take up his time. He can explain this, but this gets me. This really gets to me when yes, people say, "Look, you know, I, I'd have to decide. I'd have to stand there and pray if somebody's attacking and raping my wife. I don't. I don't know if I would. I would. Do, I, I don't know if I'd kill him or shoot him. I, I don't know. I don't. Like Russ said again, stuck on stupid. And I want to give this one example. Then we'll bring Mr. Baldwin on. Um, Russ is our gives an example. He talks about a time when his family was threatened, specifically his younger daughter. And a van came to their house, and there were uh, some apparently some gang members or some some. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had talked and, about that this weekend. Uh, they were one of them was coming along the side of the house to the to the glass uh, doors in the kitchen, and Russ had a shotgun, and you know he he said to the Lord, he said, Lord, I'm going to shoot this guy if he comes in my house. Uh, and what he ended up doing is seeing the light switch, and he turned the light switch on and off three or four times real fast, the outside light, right. and scared the guy away, and the guy left. Now, I understand I saying mean, the prayer. Look, when, when there's time right. to pray, yes, you can do that. If yes. there's only time for action, you must protect those around you. And the Bible you says you're, you're an infidel, basically. The Bible says those who seek to save their life will surely lose it, but those who lose their life for another will gain there. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Without further ado, let's get the pastor on. Pastor uh, Char, or author, pastor, uh, Paul, uh, Politico, I shouldn't say that. Great prolific author, writer. Do, uh, Dr. Baldwin appeared on uh, Ted Brower, uh, with Ted Brower back in February of this year. What a fantastic show. Pastor, or uh, Mr. Baldwin, I'm so sorry. Uh, uh, Chuck Baldwin, welcome to the Hagman Hagman Report. Doug and Joe, great to be with you. Just call me Chuck. Okay, we'll do, Chuck. Thank you so much. Sorry about tripping over my tongue there. I do that often. <laughs> oh man, I'll tell you what. I'm fired up. I'm fired up to have you. You wrote a fantastic article. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, obsession with with Bible prophecy. The devil loves it. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more on this. I, I don't know. Um, thank you for writing it because it needed to be said. Well, thank you very much. I thought it did need to be written, and that's that's why I wrote it. And I. I'm really chagrined at my brothers and sisters in the Lord and, and the way that they have taken such a passive position on, on so many things and, and how so many of them have been, uh, I think, distracted uh, by Bible prophecy. And they've used that as an excuse, basically, to to not be in the freedom fight. You know, I hear people talk all the time about well, you know, I, I, there's nothing we can do about it. This is, you know, destined to happen. The Bible says it's going to happen, you know, or maybe, you know, the rapture is going to happen and I'm going to be taken out of here, so I'm not going to have to deal with it, and other such nonsensical things. And they use prophecy, no matter what version of prophecy they adhere to, as an excuse to not be involved in the in the fight for our liberties. And And I think it's absolutely anathema to not only our nation and its freedom and our history and heritage and legacy and all that. But I think it's also anathema to what the scriptures are actually teaching and what is meant by, you know, preparing for the coming of the Lord and things of that nature it has nothing to do with being passive and and allowing evil to, to run over you without resistance or any such thing as that. And I, I got to tell you that, you know, the, the column was 
very well received overall, except within certain parts of the of the Christian community, and, I, and I'm used to that. But if we don't awaken the Christians, and especially the pulpits, and that's, I think, the key of this country, we are not going to preserve this republic. We're just, it's just not going to happen. The pulpits are the key, and the pulpits are the ones that are letting us down overall. Man, you've got that right. The pulpits indeed are the key. And the pulpits are silent, or they're silent in the face of the threat, or they are absolutely wrong on the issue, in my view. Uh, and they're leading, they're leading the lambs to slaughter. When, you know, yeah. what, where, where, the, where the pulpits, where were the pulpits in 73? Where were the pulpits in, and when they were taking the, the, uh, um, taking the prayer out of the school? Where were the pulpits, right. uh, 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 last year with the homosexual sodomite marriage thing? I'm sorry, man. Yeah. I'm taking your time. the churches, uh, embrace that before the Supreme Court. And Chuck, <clears throat> if we could ask you a question, uh, you know, where are the preachers in the pulpits? Would you say most of them don't know the Word of God, or most of them uh, do not want to preach the truth in the Word of God due to the political correctness atmosphere we have, or uh, is there other another reason why they're not doing no, their I, their job? I think it's uh, it's part of of both of the. Uh, um, Situation that you just said. Uh, many of them, well, let, let's say the vast majority of them, and I can speak to this because I've been one my entire adult life. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a four decade tenured pastor, so I've been at this thing over forty years. Not a novice. I've been there. You know, I know exactly what's what the inside is and what it looks like. I've, I've been around pastors my entire life. You can't, all the meetings, all the seminars, all the magazines, all the books, you know, I've I've spoken at at many of the largest pastors' gatherings in the country. I've been, uh, you know, I've just been a part of it, and it's been a part of me my entire life. So I think I can speak with a certain amount of experience here. Some of these men, as I was, have been taught from their earliest entry, into ministerial life that Romans 13 teaches basically a passive position relative to civil government that Christians are obligated under scriptural law to comply with governmental edict almost to the point of no matter what they really have been taught this and this this crosses denominations this crosses every kind of, of theology most pastors are schooled in submission to civil government no matter what and as a result they have been completely taken out of the of the fight for liberty I mean, like thomas jefferson said that you know that american people must always retain the spirit of resistance without the spirit of resistance you are going to allow every kind of tyrannical uh, conduct that's being promulgated by whatever government, especially nowadays the federal government, that comes along. Pastors are the ones that are the key to explain the scriptures and give people the moral, spiritual resolve and understanding to be able to know how and when and why to resist. They're not teaching that. Resistance is a word you never hear from the pulpits, and it's because of the schooling they've had. And I know because I was taught that, and thankfully I I was able to unlearn that not too 
you know, long after I got into ministry on my own. But I'm just telling you that this is the way they are educated. Then there are those, I think, that are totally intimidated by the 501c3 nonprofit organization status of the Internal Revenue Code. They're scared to death of crossing the line and perhaps losing their tax-exempt status. That hangs over their head like a, like a sword, and they're afraid of, in, of offending anything that might jeopardize their 501c3 tax-exempt status. They're also afraid of their congregations. Unfortunately, we are living in a success-driven church age. The, the, the message of the church, the focus of the church, the programs of the church, everything regarding church life is geared around being successful. And this has been proven again and again in surveys. The Barna Research Group came out with a survey a couple of years ago that absolutely nailed this. And, and the reason that the pastors are not willing to preach many of these what called, quote unquote, controversial subjects is because they're afraid of offending giving members. They're afraid that people might lose members, they'll quit tithing, and you know they're, they're looking out for payroll, they're looking out for building payments, they're looking out for insurance programs, they're looking out for their own retirement, their own benefits, you know, they're looking out for the staff. They, they, they have a CEO mentality in the pulpit. They're not really prophets and preachers and watchmen. They're CEOs and CFOs and business managers, and they are looking to grow a business. And that's the way they approach their church life. And the one thing that is contrary to success and growth, according to the experts, is being controversial or being political. So you avoid those subjects you know, like the plague. You never talk about them because, after all, you're trying to be as large as you can. You're trying to get as much money or offerings as you can. You're trying to have as, as many staff members as you can, as many programs as you can, as many buildings as you can because that's the measurement of success in their minds. So those combinations that I just mentioned there, I think, are the predominant reasons why the pastors are so silent. Very interesting, and, and I agree, and I agree. You know, I don't quite know how to, uh, Chuck, I don't know how, how to comport or to, uh, to, to really, I don't know how a, a pastor does it these days. I just don't know, given the fact that the scrutiny of the government is always on the, on the, uh, on the church if you're a 501c3. I get that. But how can you really be honest with the, Congregation, you know, as watchmen, and I consider us watchmen. We are by far not pastors, not ministers. Don't claim to be. Don't want to be. We're just guys. Joe and I. I'm his father, so I can, you know, kick his butt a little bit. But we're just plain old, plain old guys. Um, sure. Who know the, who know, know their Bible to a degree and well, and see yeah, what's some, the writing on the wall. Yeah. So no, you guys but, do a great job. Well, thank you, thank you, Chuck. But but. You know, it's 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 people like yourself who who write definitively, definitive treaties uh, on on Romans thirteen, and in my view, anyway, and of course talk about the, this this Stockholm syndrome under which we're all under. I, I believe that to, that to be the case. Um, it's 
it's people like yourself who are going to make the difference because if we don't stand up as Christians and, and, and push back, and, and I mean push back by saying, no, we're not going to, we're not going to allow the mass slaughter, the continuation of the mass slaughter of unborn babies, and we're not going to allow, um, Christians to be run roughshod over, uh, baking a, a refusal to, to, you know, to bake a, a homosexual cake or cake for homosexual marriage. We're not, we're not, we're going to stick to our principles, stick to our guns. We don't have that. I mean, we don't have that leadership anywhere, do we? No, we don't. Now, you've mentioned abortion. Let me give you a couple statistics that's probably going to surprise you. According to some recent research, and I have this posted on my website, 70% of the church Goers in America never hear the subject of abortion mentioned from the pulpit. Okay, think about that. Seventy percent—that's that's churches across the board, regardless of denomination. Seventy percent of the church members in America don't ever hear and have never heard the subject of abortion mentioned from the Scripture, which means the pastor isn't teaching. The, the, the value of life and, and, and when life begins and what God says about life, the importance of preserving life, et cetera, et cetera. They've never heard it. All right, now remember that when I tell you this next statistic. According to recent data, 70%, same figure, of the women and girls who obtain abortions claim to be Christians. And most of them wow. go to church on a regular basis. Let that sink in, folks. That's Let a, that sink in is right. Yeah. So when you talk about, you know, resisting, you know, we're not going to put up with abortion as Christians, 70%, if this data is accurate, and even if it's not, I mean, the percentage is overwhelmingly to, to, the, to the point that it's a, we know it's a majority. Of the, of the women and girls that are getting abortions, that are going to voluntarily walking into an abortuary and asking an abortionist to kill their baby. 70%, according to the latest survey, are Christian girls and women. That's a sad number. But at the same time, 70% of the Christians are not even hearing anything about it from the pulpit. So those mm-hmm. two, those are two separate and independent surveys not joined together. And yet, it's the same figure. So, the Christians are receiving no instruction, no leadership from the pulpit in in, in perhaps the most quintessential moral issue of our generation, abortion on demand, under the law, and yet Christians, by the large majority, don't ever hear it discussed from the pulpit. They have no scriptural reference in their own mind and heart on how to judge it, how to how to make life decisions accordingly. And so at, at the same time, the vast majority of the young women and girls and, and women that are seeking abortions are Christian women. Man. So what is that? That's the fault of leadership. That's the fault of the pastors. That's the fault of the preachers and the Sunday school teachers and the people in the churches who have the voice to be a watchman for truth. They're not doing it inside there. And that's just one issue. I mean, we can go down the list and talk about every issue, including you talked about Romans 13. We're talking about self-defense. You led off talking about 
the right of Christians to defend themselves, and even if that means killing an assailant in the defense of life, they're not talking about it. They're not teaching these scriptures to the people. We have a generation of Christians totally ignorant as to what the Bible says about the vast majority of the issues that are affecting us in our society. I mean, really, stop thinking about it, guys. Joe and Doug, if we had had the kind of preachers in 1775 and 1776 that we have today, there would be no, no United States of America. There would have been no war for independence. There would have been no Bunker Hill. No, there would, would have been no Declaration of Independence. There would have been no Constitution. There would be no United States of America. We would still be a, a British colony had we not had the kind of preachers in colonial America that were willing to stand up and teach their people the truth about liberty and the related issues and how to apply those to the situation at hand and gave them the moral courage and the resolve to be able to stand against the crown in, in an, as it was oppressive and fight a war for independence. And guys, I want to tell you, and the people that are out there listening, and you've got a wide audience across America, most of them probably go to church somewhere. I challenge every churchgoer that's listening to me right now, the next Sunday or the next time you go to church, ask your pastor this question and press him for an answer. Don't let him, don't let him just slough it off. Ask him this question. Do you think our founding fathers were scripturally justified in fighting our war for independence? Yes or no? It's a yes or no answer. It's very simple. Were the Founding Fathers scripturally justified in fighting our war for independence from Great Britain? And I'm telling you, what you're going to find is most of them are going to hem and haw, and they're going to, they're going to give you all kinds of double talk. Most of them are not going to want to answer that question because the vast majority of them today actually believe in their hearts that our Founding Fathers were sinful and wrong when they revolted against the British crown. And they go back to this fallacious interpretation of Romans chapter 13. At the same time, this is what gets me about all this, at the same time, every Independence Day, on or about, whatever Sunday is, you know, right around Independence Day, they will have patriotic services. They will wave the American flag, they'll sing the patriotic songs, they'll get up and talk about how grateful they are to live in a free country, and they'll, and they'll go on and on about it. And at the same time in their hearts, they believe that our founding fathers sinned against God when they rebelled against the crown. And yet they're going to get up and extol the freedoms and the liberties that we enjoy, or did enjoy anyway, as, as, a, as a nation that broke away from Great Britain. So wait a minute. They say we were birthed in rebellion against the Scripture, not against the crown. We were birthed in rebellion against the Scriptures. But they won, they prevailed, so now we have a free nation because of the sacrifice of these guys that were rebelling against, that were rebelling against God the whole time. So they're going to get up on, on, you know, on Patriotic Sunday or on July 4th, and they're going to talk about how great America is, how much they love America, and they love to be free and all this stuff. But at the same time, they're harboring in their hearts this mistaken, stupid belief that our founding fathers were unjustified in fighting the war for independence. So that's why they cannot and will not talk about resistance to what's going on in our government today. I mean, come on. 
if they don't believe that our founding fathers were justified in resisting the British crown in 1775 and 6, how in the world are they going to come to grips with them in today's economy, in today's society, standing up for freedom and liberty in their hearts? You see what I'm saying? They're battling this moral inconsistency in their, in their hearts, and the reason is, is because of this fallacious interpretation they've been taught regarding Romans 13. Well, what a twisted web there exists within the uh, within the body of the church today, and and uh, Chuck, I just see so many Christians devouring others. You know, the the swords that are being held by Christians are, are pointed inward. The guns are pointed inward at one another, mm-hmm. and there's such acrimony within the body of the church. It, it's just oh, it, it's sad, you know. I, I suppose that's another topic, but oh, yeah, yeah, boy, I could know, talk about that for a while. Uh, but acrimony over this very issue, be, because uh, you know, and and we get we get boy we we get blowback from talking about things like this, uh, the emails that the snipers uh, email snipers and the snipers who write blog posts about us and and the Facebook comments you know, about us saying oh we're just uh, ignorant stupid people because we believe in the need you know to to, to go back to the. Um, you can go back to the word, but they're brainwashed with this prosperity gospel. But anyway, we're coming right. on to you know we're coming on to a break here in just a few minutes, um, folks. And just about a minute, I guess, folks. Go to chuckbaldwinlive.com. dot com. You'll see some really cool pictures of uh, our guest tonight on the on the left. They're rotating through, and of course the uh, the DVDs, the book. <clears throat> excuse me, the various other offerings by Chuck and Tim Baldwin and Chuck Baldwin himself on the. Uh, uh, the right header, fantastic site, and, and I got to tell you the the seventy percent number that you mentioned, right there from, uh, right there under latest news links. That's that's incredible. Chuck Baldwin is our guest. Chuck Baldwin live. You know, one of the best books I read, Romans thirteen by Chuck and Tim Baldwin. Seriously, it put things in perspective. The things you guys argue about, the things you guys discuss sometimes or argue, perhaps I don't know. The uh, Freedom Documents, America's most important documents, compiled all in one book. Love that as well. You could uh, spend a lot of time on Chuck Baldwin Live. We're so lucky to have him tonight. We are so fortunate to have him for an extended period. He's been gracious enough to carve out a block of his time. And this man is a busy man, folks. Karen from Rome, our heart goes out to you listening. The Earthquake. Uh, Constance from France. Thanks for listening. Mark, Judy, and I can't read that last name from Germany. Stay tuned. We're going to be right back. Christians submit to an unjust government? That is a question asked by Pastor Chuck Baldwin in his book Romans 13, which we have right here. The true Ask meaning answered, by the way. The true meaning of submission. We're talking with Pastor Baldwin uh, about submission, about what Romans 13 really means, how it's supposed to be interpreted, 
and what to do in the face of an evil government which demands submission. We're so fortunate to have Chuck Baldwin with us, ChuckBaldwinLive.com. That's ChuckBaldwinLive.com. The law of nature and nature's God. You know, all of the laws of man better conform to the Bible or they're not a law at all. Really, not legitimate, that is. Chuck Baldwin, thanks for waiting. Thanks for uh, staying with us. We really appreciate your work. We commend you. And uh, I just love your book and love your books, plural, and love your work. Uh, thanks for hanging with us. Well, thanks, guys. I'm, I'm I'm just really thankful to be on your program today. You guys are, I think, among the the real heroes of of liberty in our country today, and I mean that. So, I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, the Romans 13 book that my son and I wrote was, you know, we saw the need for that a few years ago, back when, whenever we recognized the error that was being taught from the vast majority of, of pulpits across America, brainwashing their people into this idea that that they are to submit to civil government no matter what, and they use Romans 13 as the proof text for that. So we you know, delved into the entire Bible, not just Romans 13, but the Old and New Testaments, to give a, you know, an exhaustive look at the entire scriptures on the subject. And, of course, we wrote the book, Romans 13, The True Meaning of Submission, as a result of that. You know, and I think that what's happened to the, the Christians in the country is that they have been sedated into submission by the pulpits. Whereas in colonial America, the black regiment pastors, you know, were sources of great inspiration uh, to the people, where they taught them the, you know, the natural law relative to self-defense. They taught them the scriptural law relative to self-defense and the thing that you have to understand is really what these Christians are doing they, they may not truly comprehend what they're doing they probably don't but what they're doing in actuality is they're 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 creating an idol out of government and the, the the greatest sin that a Christian can commit in the eyes of God without question there is no close second to this the greatest sin that anyone can commit including a Christian is the sin of idolatry. And whenever we put government in the position that it has been placed in, in the ideas and the hearts of most pastors across the country, what they've actually done is made government an idol. According to the total teaching of Scripture, there's only one ultimate authority. The higher powers of Romans 13 do not represent the highest power. The highest power is God, the Lord of the highest. He is king of kings. He is authority of authorities. Therefore, all human authority, no matter what type it might be, is limited and jurisdictional in nature. It is not unlimited. It has a defined parameter and, and sphere of responsibility given it by God. And when any authority, whether it be a, a governor of a state, a president of a country, whether it be a father in a home, whether it be a, an employer in a business, you know, it doesn't matter what the authority figure is, when any authority usurps the boundaries and the jurisdiction that God himself has given to that authority, the authority becomes tyrannical, dictatorial, and Godlike, it, and at that point to submit 
is to commit sacrilege. It's to commit idolatry. I'm not sure that Benjamin Franklin understood all of the spiritual ramifications of what he said, but what he said was absolutely right. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And that's a scriptural principle. For example, let me just give you another illustration to see if people can get their you know, their heads around this one. If a father or husband in the home becomes abusive, tyrannical within his family, and he thinks that because he's the head of his home, under the scripture he is, under the scripture he has give, been given a position of authority in the family. Okay, that's very true. So does that mean that this father, this husband, has the scriptural right to take his fist and beat up his wife or beat up his children or force them to do all kinds of sinful things, things that are against the laws of nature, against the laws of God? But he says, I am an authority. I'm the head of my home. God has made me the head of my home. Therefore, you've got to submit to me no matter what. So I can beat you, I can, I can abuse you, I can force you to do things that are against nature or whatever, and you have to submit to me because God says it. Romans 13, I'm an authority. You know, Ephesians chapter 5, submit to your husbands, wives, therefore I can, I can abuse you. There's not a person listening to me right now that would concur with that. There's not a pastor that would get up next Sunday and preach that to his church. No one. No one would say that. We understand that the father and the husband has a limited jurisdictional headship in the home. He has no right to abuse his authority. He has no right to overstep his, his bounds of authority. He cannot claim scriptural justification when he does this kind of thing. Okay, if that's true in the home, in the family, which in the eyes of God, the family is the bedrock of all society. I mean, the family came before government. Family was the first institution that God ever created. Before sin came into the world, God created the family, Adam and Eve. It was this first institution created by God himself, a long time before government was ever even thought about, human government. So you're going to tell me that we expect a, past, uh, excuse me, we expect a husband and a father to limit his authority to certain moral and spiritual parameters and he cannot violate those without violating the law of God. But at the same time, a civil government, which is inferior to the family government, can usurp its power, it can usurp its constitutional boundaries and duties, it can usurp the, the parameters and, and the jurisdiction that God has given to it as, as an authority over the lives of civil uh, affairs, and yet there can be no resistance. Would we expect a wife to submit to an abusive husband and tell her she doesn't have the right to lead? She doesn't have the right to resist? She doesn't have a right to stand her ground against that kind of conduct? Well, no, we, we, we wouldn't say that. So you're telling me that a citizen of a free country, when they are confronted with a dictatorial, tyrannical type of government that refuses to, to submit itself to the highest authority, which is God, and they usurp the boundaries and the jurisdictions which are prescribed to it by God, and they abuse the citizens under their authority, that the citizen is supposed to sit there and take it passively, sheepishly, and then quote Romans 13 and say, well, God says this is what we're supposed to do. It's ludicrous 
And yet this is what's being taught, and that's why Tim and I wrote the book, Romans 13, The True Meaning of Submission, to try and help Christians understand the error that's being taught and to give them the scriptural resources that they need to be able to stand for these principles that we all know to be true. Amen. And and a great example of, you know, are we supposed to submit to an evil government? Where, How are these lines drawn? What is What does the scripture tell us? And one example uh, that I love to talk about is Daniel. Uh, in chapter 3 of Daniel, it explains the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, setting up an image of gold, um, a huge image of gold, that when um, the sounds uh, of the instruments were played, that all the kings, servants, princes, governors, captains, judges, treasurers, sheriffs, counselors, and all the civilians were to bow to this statue. And those who did not bow were uh, going to be put inside of a uh, uh, burning fire in a furnace for their disobedience. And in the story, it is uh, described that the Chaldeans came against the Jewish people and said, King, the, the Jews refused to bow to the image. And Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury that they would not bow down to the image, keeping the commandment of God. So Nebuchadnezzar heated the furnace seven times hotter than than it was and commanded that these men be thrown into the furnace for not bowing down to the statue. And uh, they were thrown in the furnace, and a fourth man was, was seen in the furnace, and it even burned the soldiers who threw them in, in the fire. But the three Jewish men who would not submit to Nebuchadnezzar did not have a hair on their head harmed. And this gives us a perfect example of what we are supposed to do in a time of making a choice of having to submit to an evil, ungodly ordinance or law, you just or do stand it. by God. Right? You, you do not bow. You don't. You don't bend. You don't. No, you don't do that. So, uh, yeah. But there's an element in this that is is not you know uh, talked about really, and that is the faith of these uh, these Jewish men. Faith is obviously the evidence of things not seen. <clears throat> they had faith in their Lord that they would be delivered. And they even said, even if we're not delivered, we are uh, the Lord's children, and He is our God, and we will obey Him, well, no matter it, what. Is that, uh, Chuck, is that kind of like when you go into battle, you have faith that you're going to re- be victorious in return? Um, is, is that the faith that we're looking at? Or when you go up against uh, a tyrannical uh, dictatorship? When you stand in front of that tank in Tiananmen Square, when you put your foot down, you've got faith, and hopefully you've got godly faith. Is that is that what that story is teaching us? Or well, the the, the story, and, and it's just one of many. The, the the story is the the willingness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to go into the fire. They did not know that God was going to deliver them. They said, if God wants to deliver us, He can. He has the power. He's Almighty. If he wants to deliver us, he can and will. But even if he doesn't choose to deliver us, we're not going to bow. We'll go and burn up, but we're not going to bow. And I think what a lot of Christians have done is they put the emphasis on on the deliverance part of it. But the real message here, the real storyline of, of Daniel and 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and so many other stories in the Bible, is not that they thought they were going to be delivered, but they were willing to go in whether they were delivered or not. In fact, you go to Hebrews chapter 11 and you read the story of the great heroes of the Bible, and we call it, you know, the Hall of Faith, and many of the people that are listed in Hebrews 11 were not delivered. You know, that's God's business. It's not our business to be delivered. It's not our business to survive. It's our business to do what is right, whatever the cost may be. It's God's business to determine whether or not our sacrifice will result in death or whether or not our sacrifice will result in life. That's up to God. Our business is to do what's right. And if you take all of the stories out of the Bible of people like you're talking about there in Daniel, you're going to remove a huge percentage of the entire scriptures. I mean, first of all, you'd have to throw out the entire book of Judges. The book of Judges is nothing more than the story of one rebel after another insurrecting against the tyrannical government over his people and God blessing him and giving him victory over the enemy, whether it's the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, it doesn't matter who the, who the oppressor was, they were oppressed, they were, they were uh, victimized by tyrannical government, God raised up a judge or a deliverer who went against the government, rebelled against the government, fought with force against the government, and with God's help, retained, or or should I say, regained liberty for their people. So if you don't believe in, in resistance to authority, you need to throw away the entire book of Judges. You need to throw away those chapters in the book of Daniel. You need to throw away the whole story between King Saul and David before David was was the king of Israel, and Saul was, and Saul, of course, became enraged David because of his popularity among the people. His jealousy took over his heart. He tried his best to kill David. David did everything that he needed to do to survive and to, and to resist the ordinance of Saul to kill him. He was a fugitive. He was on the ten most wanted list. He was the most wanted man in all of Israel under Saul. Throw that whole story away. You know, throw the story of Abraham away when he went against the kings that came and took Lot and the surrounding uh, folks and and their property and their goods and everything and, and ravaged them and took them prisoner. And Abram got his own trained servants together with arms and went after them, went into battle with them and defeated them and brought Lot back. I mean, throw it all away. The stories throughout the scriptures are replete with examples of Christian men and women saying no to unlawful government. I mean, what about Simon Peter and the apostles? We must obey God rather than men. No, we're not going to obey you. We are not going to quit preaching in the streets of Jerusalem. We are not going to silence our message. We don't care that you folks in the synagogue don't like it. We don't care that the Pharisees don't like it. And the Sadducees and the rulers and the scribes, you can be angry with us if you want to. We're not going to stop. And they were beaten, and they were jailed, and they were tortured, and some of them were killed, and eventually all of them were killed. And yet they defied again and again and again unlawful authority to do what was right. So my point is, is when you look at the entirety of Scripture, and if you're going to take this 
this ridiculous position that we're supposed to submit the government no matter what per Romans 13, you might as well destroy, I don't know what the percentage would be, a third or more of the entire Bible that tell us the examples of our spiritual forefathers who were willing to defy unlawful authority and to resist unlawful government. So you see the point is that it's an indefensible position. And it, it defies not only our own history as Americans, it defies the history of our spiritual forebears in the scriptures throughout. What about the Anabaptists who refused to submit to the Romanish church in the Dark Ages? You know, what about the Reformers that, that, that brought about Reformation in Switzerland and Germany? You know, what about the Puritans and the Pilgrims you know, that defied their authorities in Europe? What about our, our Patriot forebears and our, our colonial preachers in, in New England of, of that era? that defied the, you know, the unlawful conduct of the king and so forth. I mean, come on, you're going to go back into the entirety of world history, and you're going to see the examples of Christian men and women, along with some non-Christian men and women, that were willing to stand up in the face of tyranny and, and resist. And yet you're going to say, well, Romans 13 says we're supposed to submit here in 2016, and, you know, we're, we know more than, they, you know, we do. We know more than Calvin. We know more than Zwingli. You know, we know more than, than the Anabaptists. We know more than the apostles. We know more than the Old Testament prophets. You know, we, we're the spiritual knowledgeable ones. Romans 13 says don't submit. You're not supposed to submit. And they regurgitate this all the time, guys. And that's why our churches, instead of being Christian soldiers, have become sheepish slaves of the state. Uh, onward, Christian soldiers is, is a is a uh, antiquated uh, concept, as well as a song. Apparently, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I see this, and I see the um, pardon the the term the, the way they have bastardized the, the scripture. Many many have done that, taken taken everything out of context or not not measuring it by other passages in the Bible other other um, uh, scriptures in the Bible I, I understand that um, Chuck Baldwin is our guest his website chuckbaldwinlive.com that's chuckbaldwinlive.com a lot of great information there and certainly folks uh, gra- grab his book Romans 13 grab his materials anything you can grab a hold of it uh, uh, Chuck Baldwin is a hero, as far as I'm concerned, uh, to the Christian community, to the silent majority, or the majority who have been silenced by the pulpits who are equally silent, but uh, silent for a different reason. Again, ChuckBaldwinLive.com. Uh, Chuck, let me ask you this. Uh, we're, we're in a very tough election year, a tough election. Many people shy away from this, and, and I don't... I'm not going to get too specific here, but what do you, what message do you have for Christians who say, well, Hillary, definitely not. Trump, ah, it doesn't measure up. No one measures up. So I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to vote for Jesus. I'm going to stay home. I'm going to pray. I'm going to vote for Jesus. Well, the last time I checked, Jesus was not on the ballot. Right. So what's the answer here? What do you say to people like that? Well, yeah, a lot of Christians have that that pious, super spiritual attitude, and 
you know, they, they have taken, like I said, they've taken themselves completely out of, of the freedom fight. And, and again, it all goes back to what we said earlier in the show about so many of them have their preoccupation and infatuation with Bible prophecy. And they've, they've concluded the Lord's coming back, you know, any time, any day, and he might. But they have fixated on prophecy to the point that they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. They, they expect that somehow or other the seventh Calvary from heaven is going to come riding in at the last moment, and they're all going to be spared, you know, the, the, the great tribulation, and they're going to be spared divine judgment, etc. And I, I can't tell you how, how reprehensible I think that philosophy is. I mean, I mean some of the thing about this, Christians have been suffering under the brutal thumb or should I say the brutal boots of dictatorial, tyrannical governments since the church age began. You know, think about the Christians throughout the centuries that have suffered great tribulation. I mean, tell it to the victims of the inquisitions of, of Europe. Tell it to the, to the Anabaptists. Tell it to the reformers. Tell it to the Christians in the gulags of Mao and the, and the prisons of Stalin and the cham- gas chambers of Hitler. Think, think about the, the Africans that have gone through the despot after despot, whether it's Pol Pot or, or whoever. And they have, they have died for their faith. They've been tortured for their faith. They've suffered for their faith. You tell the Christians right now and that are suffering in Saudi Arabia. Tell the Christians right now that are suffering in China. Tell the Christians right now that are having their hands chopped off. They're watching ghastly acts of savagery and barbarity against their families. How many children in Africa and southern Sudan, Christian little Christian boys and girls and teenagers, who have seen their parents tortured and killed in front of their very eyes, you try to tell those Christians that they're not already suffering great tribulation. And yet you come to America and these pious, comfort-oriented Christians in the United States come up with this, this philosophical, spiritual, scriptural, you know, presentation, well, that can't happen here. This is America. God would never let that happen to us. We're Christians. We're Americans. God would never let that happen to us. The Lord is going to come and and save us from all of that. Really? We are that arrogant? We feel we are that important? We are that special? The whole rest of the world, in the last 2,000 years of church history, Christians have suffered and bled and been tortured and jailed and imprisoned and killed in the name of Christ for doing right, for resisting unlawful authority, whatever. And yet when it comes to us here in America, this little brief window of history, this little 200-year sliver of history, and we are so valuable, so important, we can't suffer. We can't go through tribulation. The Lord is going to come and deliver us from all of that. Well, it's funny. 
Tell it to all these Christians in history who've already gone through it. Tell it to the Christians right now and to the parts of the world that are going through it. When they stand before God in heaven, and they're surrounded by these martyrs who have given their lives in painful sacrifice for the truth, and we're going to sit there and tell them, oh, God won't let us go through tribulation. We're, we don't have to worry about it. And so they surrender, willingly surrender to evil and allow their future posterity, children, grandchildren, etc., as sure as we're talking today, are going to grow up in tyranny and oppression because we, the adults of this generation, especially the Christians and pastors, are not willing to fight to preserve liberty for our children and for our grandchildren. So to me, it is a reprehensible, disgusting philosophy that these Christians have adopted, that somehow or another, the Lord is going to come and bail us out. We don't have to... We don't have to struggle. We don't have to stand. We don't have to pay a price. We don't have to sacrifice. We can enjoy all the blessings of this modern, comfortable lifestyle. Can't give up anything. Can't sacrifice anything. And the Lord is going to come and take us away. We're all going to escape. We don't have to worry about it. And so we don't vote or we don't get active. And again, we have a, we have an example right here in our own Backyard. Chuck, I'm going I'm to I'm okay. hang, hang on just one second. You can return with that example. What a good cliffhanger that is. Chuck Baldwin is our guest. Uh, so kind to stay another two segments with the Hagman the Hagman Report. What a great guest indeed. Author of Romans 13 with his son. Uh, also, many other items on ChuckBaldwinLive.com. Folks, go there and, and shop, okay? Read. Understand what this man, this man of God is saying. I mean, we, it's our duty to stand up, not to be pushed down, to stand up and take care of business. Come right back. Stay right there. Coming to you live from our radio and television studios here in beautiful Northwest Pennsylvania, where it's a sultry, sultry night here. Uh, we're so we're so proud to offer. To, well, we're so proud that uh, we've got Chuck Baldwin as our guest. ChuckBaldwinLive.com. That's his website. ChuckBaldwinLive.com. A man of integrity, character, and a man who knows what he's talking about. Folks, uh, visit ChuckBaldwinLive.com and and take a look at everything that he's offering there especially the Romans 13 book educate yourselves educate yourselves because when you when you take Romans 13 compared to the Bible compared to what the Bible says you're going to find the word rightly divided I I I hope I'm using that in the right context but I I do suspect that you will understand <clears throat> how Romans 13 has been used for nefarious purposes by those people who don't either don't know what they're talking about or intentionally talking about the wrong usage of that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, 
I want to mention as well, portions of nice broadcast brought to you by American Survival Wholesale, americansurvivalwholesale.com. Speaking of taking care of business, let's take care of business with American Survival Wholesale. They've got the perhaps the best line of freeze-dried foods anywhere in the marketplace. That's americansurvivalwholesale.com. They do offer Christian outreach in many respects, veteran outreach in many respects. I mean, and if you have a specific problem, a specific dietary need, give them a call. Call them up. Tell them what your needs are. They will work out a package for you. That's AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. Thank them for sponsoring this program. Uh, Chuck Baldwin, again, is our guest. We're lucky to have him for two more segments here. And I, uh, he was telling, uh, relating a story. The last segment we were talking about, well, talking about the elections, talking about, well, I'll just vote for Jesus in this election, hold out. The, 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 folks, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. And I love this statement. Some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Meaning to say, mean, not disparaging to the extent that prayer is not necessary, but meaning to say, look, faith without action is dead, in my view, anyway. That's how I accept it. But Chuck Baldwin, take it away, sir. Well, yeah, that's exactly what the Bible says, too, in the book of James. No, I was I was recounting a story of, of you know talking about the, the indifference and apathy that Christians have and how they refuse to get involved in, in things civil and political, and then you know use the justification for it, saying, "Well, the Lord is coming soon. I'm not going to have to deal with this. You know, we're going to be raptured out of here." Which you know I'm not debating the actual theology and the correctness of whatever interpretation one may have. What I'm what I'm talking about is the attitude that people have in using the interpretation of prophecy as an excuse to not do anything, to not do the things they need to do. You know, Jesus said, Occupy till I come, whenever that is. Until he comes, we are to occupy. That's what he told us. The word occupy in the Greek means, as you've already said, take care of business. We have we have a lot of business responsibilities. We have family business. We have you know we have civil business. We have our vocational business. You know we have a national business. I mean we we have a lot of businesses as citizens and as parents and as as fathers and husbands and so forth. So we're to take care of the various businesses that God has entrusted to us. We're not to use our interpretation of Bible prophecy as an excuse to lay down on the job and not do what we are supposed to do. And what I was I was segueing into a story that happened here locally in our own county, where my son, who uh, was an attorney uh, for uh, in 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 Fayette County, where we live in Montana, and in the course of, of one of his cases. He uncovered blatant corruption inside the justice system of the county, especially as it went to one individual in this county. And the office that he held was of such key importance to the entire judicial system that the corruption emanating from his office spilled over into other offices. Tim had irrefutable evidence of corruption inside that office here in Flathead Valley. And he went public with it. The media picked it up nominally. They, you know, they they printed a couple stories and then that was it. But it, it, it became noticed enough that I'm sure every pastor in this valley knew about the corruption of their own local justice department. 
what did they do? They did absolutely nothing. They said nothing to their congregations. They, they did not bring it up. They did not rally the people in the defense of liberty and justice in their own community, in their own backyard. You know, guys, if we are willing to allow corruption in our own backyard, in our own local justice, in our own local court system, I think we are kidding ourselves if we think that somehow we're going to rally around a great national cause and we're going to stand for some great national movement and bring national change to our country. You know, if we can't do it in our own local county, city, municipality, our own backyard, to think that we're going to do it on a national level, I think is just it's just a, a, a wild imagination. But that just illustrates a little bit of, of the indifference that has taken over our pulpits and our churches. Think about what would have happened. What would have happened in this county? And I promise you this kind of corruption that was uncovered here, this is a, a conservative, God-fearing, small community. I mean, this is one of the best places, in my opinion, the best place to live. It's a wonderful place. Wonderful people. The vast majority of people are honest, God-fearing, hard-working people, etc., etc. You got this one example of corruption, and you refuse to do anything about it. If the pastors would have gotten up in their pulpits as soon as it was discovered, and it was said, folks, we cannot stand for this. If God is for anything, he's for justice. He's the God of justice. One of the requirements for civil leadership is that they be men and women of justice. That goes back to the teaching of Samuel, the prophet, in the Old Testament. That the fear of God and, and the love of justice are the two main attributes that any civil leader should have. So we have in our own backyard a civil official who is thoroughly, totally, now knowingly corrupt, we cannot allow this. We need to petition our city council. We need to petition our, our people in, uh, in government to get rid of this man and to clean up this office for the justice of the, of the people of this county, to make sure that people here get a, a just hearing in, in a court of law, etc. If they would have done that, you know and I know that almost overnight that individual would have been removed from office or he would have resigned. That office would have been cleaned up. There would have been someone else take his place that had integrity. And that issue would have been resolved and we would have a better community today. The pastors could have done it. They did nothing. The man is still there. The corruption is still there. The injustice is still there. And it's the pastor's fault. And that's the story that's going on in communities all over this country, and the reason is the pastors have taken themselves, and by doing so, their congregations, out of the freedom fight. Amen. Yeah, paging Bu uh, Buford Pusser uh, from 1974. Uh, you, you know, when, folks, Chuck Baldwin is our guest, making a great point here. If we can't do this, if we won't do this, if we refuse to do this on, on clean up our own backyard, clean up our own messes, what makes you so sure that we're going to do this on a national level? It, it's it it 
that's a that's a great point. Right. Change can only come from the individual first that's and right. the local level and work its way to the state and then federal level. We can't expect one presidential candidate to become uh, elected and to change everything uh, as where's we have the, seen. You know, you know, where's the fire in the hearts of men? Where has that gone? It's certainly mm-hmm. not being stoked by the fans of flames from the pulpits. You're right. Um, and, and I, I, I just noticed a, a Pew Research poll about the belief in God and miracles now are it's yeah. at an all-time low. Yep. Um, and I and I have to believe that the Americans giving up on God. Yes, yes, and, and it's on drudge today. And I think that I think that a lot of that, uh, Chuck, is is what we're seeing. Or, or the, I, I guess that would be a what a consequence in this case of of the lack of uh, Christian leadership, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Yes. The problem is not that America is rejecting. The message of God or the message of the Bible, what is happening is they're not hearing the message of God or the message of the Bible. They're not hearing it. It's it's prosperity-oriented nowadays. It's prosperity-driven. It's success-driven. Prosperity preachers like Joel Osteen, Rick Warren, these are the guys that are setting the standard for the pastors, and these are the ones the pastors are emulating and, and trying to mimic their their churches and their their protocols and their methods and so forth as a result they're not it, between that and the 501c3 threat hanging over their heads of losing their nonprofit status they they they're not hearing the message they're not preaching the message and the people are are just hearing feel good sermons the preachers get up and they you know for about 20 minutes you know, give a little sermonette, nothing convicting, nothing hard, nothing challenging. It's all fluff, facade. You know, it's program-oriented. It's kids' programs this and youth programs this, and everybody has these programs, and they, you know, it's a, a glorified social club. People aren't going to church to hear the Word. They're not going to church to hear the message of truth. They're going to church to be with their friends. They're going to church to have a social contact, or maybe businessmen are going to church to have business contacts. It's it's all about you know it's a, it's really most churches today, guys, are nothing but a glorified social club. That's all it is. That's right. It's yeah. all about it's all about fellowship. It's all about fun. It's all about frivolity. And it's all about food and recreation. You know, and the kids play, and they have all this equipment. You go to the average church if it's any size and you'll see more money spent on the gym equipment and the recreation buildings for the kids to play in than you will the worship center for people oh, yeah, to hear the yeah. word of god and they bring in the starbucks coffee you know yeah, yeah. And, yeah <laughs> exactly and, and seriously i went to a a, a church not too long ago um where, where that that's you know they they had all this uh, fancy musical equipment and uh, these big screens and but you know the the word was so soft I mean the teachings were, were so soft the the message was was so uh, it was like pablum you know it just didn't resonate and and I thought man for all of the, the, this money that could be spent they had a they had to go throw throw it on Starbucks and. Uh, Projectors and, and music, but but that's just me. Um, 
And I, I think I'm not alone in that. Uh, Chuck Baldwin is our guest, ChuckBaldwinLive.com, folks. If you haven't checked out his website, do so. Romans 13, his book written by uh, by Chuck Baldwin and his son. Many other uh, many other items available on his website as well. Please, folks, visit that. Um, we owe a debt of gratitude uh, for him uh, uh, to him for for being with us tonight. He's say, saying a lot, and I know that this resonates with a lot of people listening tonight. We've got uh, just tens of thousands across the United States and Canada. Uh, a couple of people checking in from uh, uh, Costa Rica. One from one from South Africa. God bless you. Um, numerous people all across Europe, and we do pray for. Karen in Rome and what happened there with the earthquake earlier today. So, uh, Chuck Baldwin, let, let me ask this kind of a side, little side note here. We're, we'll get back to our uh, uh, topic here, but I just love this. And I think histor- people don't know history. Americans are so ignorant about their own history; it, it's it's mind blowing. You've got a, you've got a, uh, you posted something to Facebook yesterday, and folks follow Chuck Baldwin on Facebook. Uh, you posted something there yesterday, and I just have to laugh at this because I read this and I thought, man, I wonder how much he's, I wonder how much blowback he's getting on this. Uh, here, here's my list for the top ten worst presidents in U.S. history, and, and I, I read that and I thought, man, oh man, I love it because rounding the corner, number one is Abraham Lincoln. Okay, uh, folks. If you, you know, if you if you think Abraham Lincoln was just this stellar person, man, you, you got to know the real Lincoln. Um, you don't know your history. And, and Woodrow Wilson, of course, number two, FDR, followed by LBJ, and then number five, pulling the middle is George W. Bush, and then of course, right right below him at six is Barack Obama, seven is Bill Clinton. You get the idea. And uh, closing it out is Richard Nixon. Grant's in there too. And, you, you got to know about Grant, and then, oh, of course, George H. W. Bush as well. So you're an equal party kind of. <laughs> you don't mess around. You want to talk about this because I, I'm sure people are saying, well, wait, "What is this guy doing here?" I love it though. Oh, thank you. I just I threw that out to just to you know threw it out to my Facebook followers. I got a lot of people that that follow my Facebook page and and love to. You know, comment and interact on on posts that I make and so forth. And to me, that was kind of a, a kind of a fun thing I just threw out. And it's as it's it's got a lot of reaction. You know, yeah, people. I, I don't know how much we want to talk about this, but you know, Abraham Lincoln has really you know been deified by our education system, our our, our media, uh, government people. Everybody deifies Abraham Lincoln, and really, if you really want to think about it this way, in in the eyes of the big government folks, no matter whether they're Democrats or Republicans, and there's there's almost as many big government people in the Republican Party as there is in the Democrat Party, and in their eyes, really, America began with the election of Abraham Lincoln. Really, it didn't begin in 1776 or even. Uh, 1780, you know, 1789 or 1787, when the Constitution was written and adopted, it, it began in 1860 when Abraham Lincoln became president. They, they never talk about Washington. You never hear them talking about Jefferson. You never hear them talk about James Monroe. You, you know, you, always, you know, America began with the election of Abraham Lincoln, and w- really every area of every problem area that we're dealing with today in terms of a usurping government, 
in terms of the infringement of liberties, the violation of the Bill of Rights, the violation of constitutional law, up and down the board, every problem area that we're dealing with has its seed and its root in Abraham Lincoln. And for people out there who still have this this notion that Abraham Lincoln was some kind of a, a great man or a great president, I would just invite you to go find a book written by Thomas DiLorenzo called The Real Lincoln. Uh, Tom did a great service to America when he wrote that book. He's taken tremendous heat over it. Uh, people have vilified him in in ways that most folks just could never imagine. But he stood by his ground, his guns. He even wrote a sequel to that a little bit later on. He's a great author, a great researcher, a great historian, and he wrote a book. It's a masterpiece. It's a it's it's a must read. It's called The Real Lincoln by Thomas DiLorenzo. And you read that book for starters and you can go from there in your research. But Abraham Lincoln was a monster. Abraham Lincoln really created the the country that we're living in today. Uh, he truly reinvented the United States. He forever, for the most part, for all intents and purposes, uh, expunged the Washington Jeffersonian model of government that our founding fathers adopted. Uh, in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, he basically threw that in the wastebasket and he created this imperial presidency that we've been dealing with for the most part and seems to grow greater and greater with each administration. Uh, and so, you know, when you look at the problems of America, it really they began with Abraham Lincoln. That's why I put him at number one. And, and rightly so, because I, I've read that book. Uh, I've got that book, in, or we have that book in our library, as well as a couple of others, and uh, you're, you're right on the money. And I, and I think, you know, really the relevance here, of course, is the groundwork was laid by Lincoln. And, of course, if everyone knows how our history, our, our American history, has been revised and how people are not paying attention to, to that those revisions to, to, to depict Lincoln as this grand savior of things, Um but moving on down the list, you've got George H.W. and George W. Bush separated by a few, but nonetheless included in this list. And I look at them, um, I, I, I really agree with you because I do believe this slippery slope that we're, that we're on, uh, this path to, uh, to becoming, well, not being a Christian nation anymore was greased by the Bush family as well as the Clintons. The, uh, you know, this, 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 I often say we don't have a problem in this country with, to, uh, with intolerance. We, we've got a tolerance problem. And mm-hmm. I really think that that, Chuck, I think that that really became, became part of the lexicon here, uh, in the, in the environment under George W. Bush. Do you agree? I mean, we would oh, have this Islamic uh, problem. Okay, you know, because George w, yeah, Obama was a product, basically, of George W. Bush. We would You're have exactly right. You know, so, yeah, I mean, this all fits together, doesn't it? Uh, this, and, and, of course, is a product of a consequence of inaction, all of this. Well, I, I you know, I've, I've researched this a lot, and I've, I've been doing it since Bill Clinton was, was governor of Arkansas. My family hails from Arkansas. Um, you know, almost all my kinfolk are, are in Arkansas even to this day. 
um, I'm, I'm really familiar with the state and have a lot of affection for the people there, and, and I, I know it quite well. You know, whenever he became governor of Arkansas, and then some of the stories began to come out about all that was happening in Mena, and I know Lil D. Brown personally. Uh, I had him on my radio talk show back in the 90s, and we, you know, talked about you know, his book that he wrote about the, the Clinton scandals, and and and, and I sat over the, the lunch table with him more than once, and we talked about it. I mean, he was, of course, he was Clinton's um, chief of security you know, when he was governor, but before that, he was he was Bill's best friend. They grew up together. Uh, LD's wife was the the nanny for Chelsea when she was a little girl. I mean, they were childhood buddies, you know. And and he thought that Bill was just a, you know, just a great, honest guy. You know, he became governor, and and he was proud to to be in his his staff and head of security, and and you know, he he became uh, he got a, an appointment to the CIA, and how all that came about is incredible. And, <laughs> He was just appointed to the CIA. He didn't have to apply or anything. You know, this Bill Clinton picked up a phone and talked to George H.W. Bush in the White House, and the next thing you know, L.D. Brown's in the CIA. And so he's flying, you know, back and forth from MENA to Central and South America, and he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know what the cargo was. And until one day in, in sheer boredom, he cut open a, a, a package, and to his horror, discovered that he's hauling cocaine around and heroin. And... You know, so he goes back and, and tells Bill, and, and, you know, he discovers that Bill knew all about it, and, and he's shocked, and and then, you know, he said, man, you know, what about, you know, what about the, the, the federal government? You know, what about the DEA? What about the Justice Department? You know, what about the, you know, the ramifications that's going to come to bear? You can't get by with this forever, and come to find out G.H.W. Bush knew all about it, and they were all in on it, and, I, and I've said it. You know, since the 1990s, I've been saying that the Clintons and the Bushes are one crime family. And that's exactly what they are. They are a crime family. And this whole concept of G.W. Bush being this great Christian president was nothing more than a propaganda strategy put together by Karl Rove, who is one of the most disgusting, despicable man ever to set, set his feet in Washington, D.C., and and G.W. Bush is the one that he did, he did what Bill Clinton could never have done when he was president. Clinton tried it. Al Gore tried it. It didn't work. Republicans wouldn't buy it. They rejected it. Bush becomes president, and almost overnight, Department of Homeland Security comes into being. You've, you've got uh, the Patriot Act, the Military Commissions Act. You got the sections 21 and 22 of the NDAA. Posse comitatus is no more. Uh, permanent incarceration of American citizens is now the law of the land. I mean, G.W. Bush. Everything that Barack Obama is to echo what you just said. Everything that Barack Obama has done in his eight years in office. G.W. Bush is the one that gave him the power to do it. He handed Barack Obama on a silver platter everything that Barack Obama has done. To say that Barack Obama has done all this on his own and to target Barack Obama 
only as the purveyor, you know, of criminality and, and injustice, et cetera, et cetera, is to lose sight of the fact that Barack Obama wouldn't even exist. Barack Obama wouldn't even have had any of the ability to do what he's done if it hadn't been handed to him by G.W. Bush. G.W. Bush is horrible. He's absolutely horrible. Under Bush, we attacked two sovereign countries without justification. We created this entire war of aggression mentality in the Middle East. The, the drones that are flying every day, the planes that are flying every day, dropping bombs, killing hundreds of thousands, millions of people across the Middle East with, without cause. He's the one that completely threw away the just war theory that has guided American jurisprudence and military action, at least at least in theory, it guided us from the beginning of our history. He threw the just war theory in a garbage can, and now we have become an imperial nation. We have, have become a shoot-first, ask-questions-later nation, a, a preemptive war, perpetual war nation. And we were the ones that created ISIS. We were the ones that created the, the militant uh, uh, Islamic terrorists that we're now dealing with. And we're the ones that created all these immigrants that are invading Europe and all the problems that we're having on our border. And everything that we're dealing with, for the most part, administratively, goes back to G.W. Bush. He's the one that unleashed the horrors of hell on That's right, our Mr. nation. Baldwin. That's right, from the... Uh, initial doubling of the national debt to the doubling of the number of food stamp recipients to the implementation of the Patriot Act from the inception of PNAC and much, much more. Stick around for uh, Hillary's third term, or uh, Obama's third term, I'm sorry. We're talking with well, actually, Chuck, had, yep, Chuck Baldwin. We'll be right back after these short messages. Stay with us. segment is Dr. Baldwin, Pastor Chuck Baldwin, author of Romans 13, The True Meaning of Submission. We're talking about a number of things, and in this segment, uh, Pastor Baldwin, if we could, let's get into the some of the initiatives that you have ongoing, specifically those pertaining to the Second Amendment. You, you know, you're so, you're so gracious to us, we want to help you spread the word we just love it. I mean, because you are showing the initiative. You're, you're, people say, well, what can I do? Well, visit chuckbaldwinlive.com, right? I mean, so we want to give you the opportunity to, to take, take us wherever you want to go. It's your time right now. We won't interrupt. And if, whatever you want to talk about from your, from your various, uh, initiatives, your foundation to, uh, to your fellowship, uh, whatever. So take it away. Oh, thanks guys. You're, you're gracious host. And, and I just want to, since we're talking, I, I can talk to you one-on-one. I, I just want to tell you how much I and thousands and thousands of other Americans across the country appreciate the work that you guys are doing. I mean, to get on this on this program every day for three hours and 
you know, address the issues you do and, and bring up the salient issues that the American people need to be aware of. I mean, I did a radio talk show for two hours a day for several years, uh, and I know the workload that goes into it, the prep time that goes into it. Uh, people just have no idea, unless you've ever done it, the preparation and, and the study and the research and everything that it takes to put on a three-hour show every day. You guys you. just really deserve a lot of credit, so I, I don't want Thank to be remiss in, in telling you that. Thank but you, I, I would like to talk about, yeah, the, I'm glad you brought up the Second Amendment because I think it really goes hand-in-hand hand with the Romans 13 issue that we talked about earlier on the show. You know, back in 2013 when Obama and Feinstein proposed their, uh, uh, what they called assault weapon, really it was a semi-automatic rifle ban, if that bill would have gone through, every semi-automatic rifle would be banned by law, along with the extended magazines, and there would have been a national database created of gun owners, etc. When that first happened, again, this is 2013, what became very obvious to me was, again, the lack of response by the pulpits of America. The, the pastors were either saying nothing at all in defense of the Second Amendment, or they were actually going along with the government mantra and saying things like, well, if the government passes this law outlawing your guns, then Romans 13 kicks in again and you should give them up. Well, fortunately, enough of the rank-and-file American citizenry of all stripes and shapes and sorts rose up against that bill, and it didn't even make it out of the democratically held Senate which was a shock to Washington, because they thought for sure it would pass the Senate. They weren't sure about the House, but they thought it was a done deal in the Senate. Well, lo and behold, the Democrats in the Senate even voted against the bill, so it never made it out of the Senate. So it was defeated. But there was no thanks to the pastors of America. And when I realized that, my son and I, again, he's a constitutional attorney, we wrote a, another book called To Keep or Not to Keep, Why Christians Should Not Give Up Their Guns. And we go into the totality of Scripture, Old and New Testament, and we prove that self-defense is more than a constitutional right per the Second Amendment. It is a biblical duty. In other words, as Christians, we have a duty to protect life. I will, I will go so far as to say that any Christian that does not and is not willing to exercise his responsibility to defend the life that our Creator gave us, he has denied the Christian faith, and he's worse than an infidel. And I base that on the verse written by the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian believers when he said that if a man provide not for his own, and especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what does it mean to provide? Does that mean just food and clothing and shelter? Well, of course it means all of the above, but it also means safety and security. It's the duty of every parent to provide safety for his or her children. It is, it is a duty. It's not a constitutional right. The Second Amendment doesn't provide us 
with uh, the right to keep and bear arms. It simply recognizes the duty that we have under God to keep and bear arms. We get no right from government. Everything comes from our Creator. Our founders were just sagacious enough to put into our Bill of Rights the protection of the liberties and the rights that God gave us. So the the right of self-defense is more than a, a, a constitutional issue. It is a biblical issue. And Christians and pastors who refuse to deal with this issue are denying the Christian faith. They are, they are not allowing the people in, in their congregations, in their churches, within their influence, to become aware of their scriptural duty and mandate under heaven to defend themselves and their loved ones. In the natural kingdom, even a, a little bird that has no real aggressive or offensive uh, capability, if, if they sense a predator nearby the nest where the young are vulnerable, that little bird will feign a broken wing or whatever. We all know the story. We'll pretend that it's easy prey, and the predator will follow it and try to try to capture it, doing that to lead the predator away from the little ones on the nest. Well, that's all of nature does that. We live in grizzly bear country here in northwest Montana, and, and bears will often defend their young. Uh, every every animal in the, in the animal kingdom will defend its young against a would-be predator. It's a natural law. Well, we as human beings have that same law written in our hearts. It's written in Scripture. And in our book, To Keep or Not to Keep, we go into all of the objections that the anti-Second Amendment people use to try and debunk our duty to, to protect one another, our, our family, our community, our country, etc. For example, in the garden, uh, whenever Jesus was being arrested, and the, the, the soldiers from the high priest came to arrest Jesus. Simon Peter was carrying a sword. We know that at least two of the disciples carried swords. Right before they went to the garden, in Luke chapter 22, verse 36, Jesus told the disciples to go buy a sword, even if they had to sell their clothes to do it. Go buy a sword. The sword he was talking about, uh, guys, was the Roman sword, that is mentioned in Romans 13. He, government, beareth not the sword in vain. The one that they love to, to quote so much from Romans 13. It's the same word that's used in Romans 13 that's used in Luke 22, 36. By a sword, a Roman sword. Well, the thing that preachers will never tell you is that it was against the law for the, the Jewish subjects of the Roman Empire to, to buy or to obtain Roman swords. Jesus actually commanded them to violate Roman law and buy a Roman sword for self-defense. The disciples said at that moment, well, here are two swords. So there were two men carrying swords. We don't know who the other one was, but we know one was Simon Peter. We know that because just a little bit later, they go to the garden. That's whenever the soldiers from Herod come. And to arrest Jesus, Simon Peter takes the sword out of its sheath. He, he tries to cut the head off one of the men. The man ducked. He cut off his ear. Jesus said, put up your sword into its place, meaning into its scabbard. Then he said, they that live by the sword die by the sword. Well, that phrase has been taken to mean by all these Christian pastors. Well, not all. I'm being a little hyperbolic there. Most of them that it means, well, we should never defend ourselves with a weapon. 
that's not what Jesus meant at all. It's so many things interesting about that particular, and we go into this in the book. He said, put it back in its place. Put it back in the, in the scabbard. He didn't tell him to give it up. Why didn't the soldiers disarm Simon Peter and the other disciple in the garden that was carrying the sword illegally? They came to arrest Jesus. They saw these men with swords. One of the men, Simon Peter, tried to kill one of uh, Herod's servants. Why didn't they arrest Simon Peter? Why didn't they take him into custody? Why didn't they confiscate his weapon? Why didn't they confiscate the weapon of the other disciple? Why didn't they arrest both of those men for carrying illegal weapons and take them to jail? Why didn't they do that? Well, if you remember, the scripture says that whenever they, they asked Jesus if he was Christ, if he was Jesus, and he said, I am, the power of his voice was so powerful that the soldiers actually were knocked backward onto the ground by his voice. Now, what Jesus was doing there was protecting Simon Peter and the other disciples. He was letting those soldiers know that they were not the dominant force in that garden. He actually kicked <laughs> he put them on their butts, if you'll let me say that word. <laughs> sure. He put them on their, on their hindquarters just by his spoken word. I mean, those soldiers had to have gotten up with such fear and respect for the power of this man that they were sent to arrest. And they did nothing. And Simon Peter and the other disciple walked out of the garden with their swords on their belts and they were not confiscated they were not arrested Jesus protected them from the Roman soldiers that no doubt would have arrested them on weapons possession and attempted murder at least in the in the case of Simon Peter but they went free and Jesus was the reason they went free and we go into what Jesus meant by that and you go to the book of Revelation where this is basically the same thing that Jesus said in Luke is repeated in Revelation. And there what you're going to find is that it applies to tyrants. And what Jesus was saying to Simon Peter, it was not a threat to Simon at all. They don't live by the sword, Donald. He wasn't, you know, he, well, if you take up the sword, you're going to die, Simon. He, that wasn't it. What he was saying to Simon Peter is, don't you worry, Simon, these oppressors, these tyrants, are going to be destroyed by the sword. If they conquer with the sword, if they are abusive with the sword, if they misuse the sword, trample over others, and, mis and kill others, and subject others to the power of the sword, you can count on this. They are going to be destroyed by the swords of rebels. They will be destroyed by the swords of those that insurrect against them. And did that happen? You bet it happened. Just about 30-some-odd years later, the, uh, the Roman uh, military commander Titus marched into Jerusalem, and he fulfilled the word of the Lord Jesus, and he took care of those usurpers and those, uh, those tyrants with the power of the sword. So that was the promise. The promise was the people that come to power with force, that maintain power with force, who live off of force, you can mark it down. They are going to be defeated 
by force. That was a, if it was a threat to anybody, it wasn't a threat to Simon Peter. It was a threat to those Roman soldiers and the Roman government and the Jewish government from, from the Pharisees on down. You have ruled by force. You have gained access by force. You continue to, to rule by force. The, the day's coming when force is going to overthrow you. And that's the consistent theme of the entire Word of God. He was saying, Peter, it's not time to use the sword now. I came for this purpose. I came to be arrested by these men. I came to be crucified for the sins of mankind. I came that I might resurrect from the dead. This is all part of God's plan. There's a time to use the sword. There's a time not to use the sword. Now is not the time to use the sword, but don't worry. Payday is coming for these people. And, and we go into all the other scriptures of the Bible and show how the consistent teaching of scripture is the duty that we have under God to defend the life and lives that God has given to us. And so that's why we wrote the book, To Keep or Not to Keep, Why Christians Should Not Give Up Their Guns. Chuck, when was that published? I don't know how in the world I missed that, but I'm going to be adding that to my library forthwith. Uh, that just... would have been, yeah, that would have been right out. It would have either been in the latter part of 2013 or the first part of 2014. Oh man, okay. Well, yeah, I gotta grab that book. To keep or not to keep, uh, off of, uh, ChuckBaldwinLive.com. Sounds fantastic. Sounds like a great resource. The one that we need. And you know, so many people, and it, it really, it, it breaks my heart to, to see men, Christian men, or men who identify as Christians, uh, or to call themselves Christians, uh, being subjugated under the laws, the tyrannical laws, here in the United States, the different state laws, uh, it's to see a line out the uh, out the door to, to turn in uh, uh, magazines that are over capacity, or, or to bow to the to the laws of the you know at the, at the expense of their families. And uh, Chuck, do you do you see if we? I I know you don't have a crystal ball. I certainly am not going to hold you to this, but just talking about this, you and I. Uh, with with a with a Clinton nominator or a Clinton uh, presidency, do you see that? Do, do you see our Second Amendment rights going away? I mean, I, I know it's a softball question, but I mean, many people say, "Oh no, don't worry about it. It's never going to happen here." But but I think it is. If Hillary Clinton is elected president, we, it'll be the 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 most horrific, aggressive attack against the Second Amendment in our country's history. Uh, we have never seen anything like what will happen against the Second Amendment should Hillary Clinton, God forbid, be elected president of the United States. Here, here's the thing. At some point, and it, I wrote this in a column not too long ago, and I think I was even on my Facebook page. I said, first of all, if you don't own a semi-automatic rifle, an AR-type rifle, you are unprepared to defend liberty in this country. That there's only one weapon that can successfully defend liberty, and that's the semi-automatic rifle. The pistol can't do it, the revolver, the shotgun, the bolt-action hunting rifle, they, they, they can't do it. There's only one rifle that can protect our liberties as a people. I'm not talking about individuals, I'm talking about as a, as a people. And that's the semi-automatic rifle. So, first of all, people that don't own a semi-automatic rifle are not even in a position to defend liberty, in my view. 
if you live in a community or a state or a city where the, you're not allowed to own a semi-automatic rifle, why in the name of liberty are you still there? That's the first thing. The second thing is, if you are going to buy a semi-automatic rifle, which I think every household should have at least one, or better yet, one for every adult in the house, you have to be prepared to become an outlaw in the eyes of our government. And if you are not prepared to become an outlaw in the eyes of our government, which really were not the outlaws, they are the outlaws at that point, but if you're not prepared to be an outlaw in the eyes of your government, then you're not prepared in your heart to defend liberty. You have to be prepared to be deemed an outlaw by your government. You have to be willing in your heart to fight and die for the freedoms that are written in that Bill of Rights and which our forefathers died to give to us. If it comes to that, God forbid that it does, but if it comes to that, we must be willing not only just to go out and buy one, but we have to be willing to become an outlaw to keep it and be willing to die to maintain the liberties that we say we believe in. And if you're not prepared to do that, you're not prepared to defend liberty. Just be honest with yourself. The Second Amendment has nothing to do with target shooting and duck hunting and deer hunting and all this. It has to do with protecting our free country, our free state, our free community from a tyrannical government. That was the entire purpose of the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And we have to understand that this is a duty we have before God. That this is a spiritual duty, it is a biblical duty, it is a duty that we were given at birth by nature, as our, by, by our Creator, and by scriptural law in the Bible. And we must be prepared to buy one, we must be prepared to practice with it, to know how to use it, we must be prepared to become an outlaw if they try to pass a law that says we can't own it, and refuse to surrender it. And I, you know, it, this is what our founding fathers did for us. We wouldn't be here today if they hadn't done that. And if we're not willing to do that, and I say again, God forbid that it comes necessary, but if it comes to that, we must be willing to do that as well. Or let's just quit playing games and just be willing to admit, I am willing to be a slave. I'm willing to live under tyranny. Let's quit playing games. Let's quit pretending we're patriotic. Let's quit pretending we love our country and we love freedom and all these things that we like to spout off. Let's just forget it and say, I'm willing to be a slave. I'm willing to live under tyranny. And if we're not willing to fight and defend our liberties with a firearm, if it comes to that, then we are already slaves in our hearts. And Patrick Henry said something to the effect that before a tyrant can put the chains around our neck, he must first put them around our heart. And I fear that far, far too many Americans, including many Christians, have already put the chains of tyranny around their hearts, gentlemen. And they've already accepted the tyrant's chains. And that's why whenever these laws 
by taking away our right to keep them their arms and confiscating our rifles and etc. When these things come around, the pastors are mute, silent, say nothing, the Christians say nothing. Oh, well, okay, fine, fine. If that's the way you want to believe and that's the way you want to live, just admit it. Be honest and admit it. I'm willing to live as a slave. But, fellas, I'm here to tell you that there are millions and millions of Americans across this country that are not willing to live as slaves. You know, George Washington was the man who said that uh, we would rather die on our feet than live on our knees. And there are millions, and, and, and every month is a new record for gun sales in this country. Right. It's been that way for the last couple of years. Yep. And many, most of the guns that are being sold today are the black guns. By that I mean the AR-type semi-automatic rifles. You don't really believe, do you, that these people that are going out investing maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars or whatever the cost is for a for a semi-automatic rifle plus ammo plus magazines and all the other you know, utensils that goes along with it, just so that a year from now, after Hillary is is president, God forbid, and she successfully passes Congress or convinces Congress to pass a, a law banning semi-automatic rifles. And I don't I don't trust Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell one bit. <laughs> so well, anybody that thinks yeah. that they're going to be a great savior you know, in the Congress, forget that. But anyway, you don't really think these people are going out there spending all this money just so that a year from now or two years from now, the government comes along and says, well, you know what? You can't own these anymore. You've got to turn them in. No. They're not, gonna, they're not doing it for that. And, and so, you know, at some point... The American people are going to have to make a decision, each and every one of us for ourselves, in our own hearts, individually, are we going to live as slaves or not? And I'm just telling you, and I've said this from my pulpit at Liberty Fellowship more than once, the day that my semi-automatic rifle is outlawed, I will be an outlaw, and I mean that with all my heart. And I know in my heart I am justified by a holy, righteous God. That's what it's going to take. Chuck Baldwin, Chuck Baldwin Live. Mr. Baldwin, we just want to say thank you for your gracious gift of time. You, you've actually, I, I could listen to you for another two, four, six hours. You're, you're the kind of guy that just makes so much sense in giving it, just giving it all. Uh, thank you. Thank you for being our guest tonight. Thank you for your words of wisdom. Thank you for your columns that you've written. Thank you for your books that you've written. Thank you for educating the public about the Word of God and our duty to protect ourselves and what we need to do to take care of business. Thank you, sir, for your appearance. God bless you. Thank you very much. All right. I, uh, thank, thank you very much, guys. Folks, that was Chuck Baldwin. I mean, wasn't that great? See, this gets this gets me going. I, I, we we got to hear just a few a few minutes of the break, but this really gets me going, Joe. Um, I think when you've got a guy, a man of God, a man of stature like this of Chuck Baldwin, and he, I'm um, Pastor Langford, on the same page. I'm not putting words in Pastor Langford's mouth at all or Chuck Baldwin's mouth, but you listen to the message of Chuck Baldwin. You listen to the message of Pastor Langford. They're they're nearly identical. Now, that doesn't mean that we go out looking for trouble, okay? Don't don't, don't even go there. We're not going to go out arm ourselves and go look for trouble because I'm going to tell you something. Trouble is coming to us. In case you haven't noticed, trouble will be knocking on our door. 
thought I had it earlier today, but thankfully not, not. Um, but seriously, trouble is coming to our door. Portions of the nice broadcast brought to you by AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. Have you gone there yet? Have, have you gone to AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com to get their food packages? Oh, folks, they'll work with you. They'll work with you. Dietary needs, they'll work with you. Family size, they'll work with you. Talk to them. Christian company, veteran company. Christian-owned, veteran-owned, that is. It's AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. you got to go there. you got to check them out. And be prepared. Be prepared physically, mentally, and above all, spiritually, for what's about to take place, because you know it ain't good. I got a story to relate to you on the other side. I want you to stay with me. Stay with us. It's a real brief story. It's got to do with uh, the man's place, the husband's place, the man's place. That's right. I'm talking to you men out there. Stay right there. Hagman and Hagman, the Hagman and Hagman Report, HagmanandHagman.com. I'm Doug Hagman. I'm the old old guy, I guess. That would make me Joe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I've got to, I want to relate a story. This hour, analysis of the news, information, things that you need to know, um, the headlines are dire. And I said yesterday we, we should not, uh, you know, we, we can't be, we can't be paralyzed by a spirit of fear. We can't be, Certainly there's no paralysis of analysis that's necessary, but we have to be sober-minded when we look at these headlines. To that end, um, I'm getting pummeled by censorship, and <laughs> it's amazing to watch the analytics on the story. On the article I wrote, of pillows, pantsuits, and pickles... Yes, uh, pillows, pantsuits, pantsuits, and pickles. That's right. That's, that's right. a good. Yeah, that's, that's the title of that today, But that's yeah. fitting. It's in fact, it's posted on Canada Free Press for for comments. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting article. I I wrote that uh, in the wee hours of this morning. But uh, yeah, if you want to go to Canada Free Press to comment, read it at Hagman and Hagman dot com. Go to or I'm sorry, HagmanReport dot com and, and go to Canada Free Press to comment. Of pillows, pantsuits, and pickles, but right now it's being buried in the, uh, uh, be, it's being buried by the search engine Google. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and then, in the in, in the body that he, that story is, a, or that the article is a is an article to Judy McLeod's article about uh, the censorship aspect of Google. So it's important to read. Before we come back, Joe, hang on a second. I want to speak to the guys out there, the the Christian men, the men. Eric, you got to the head of the families. You know, uh, really. Um, in my years, I've seen a lot of things. I've seen a lot of a lot of guys meet up with uh, with girls, with women, and, and they have a tendency to be all bravado when they first meet up with them. 
and then they, um, I don't know, something happens, it seems. I was talking to my wife about this. What do you mean? Like, they, when they first turn, meet, they got to be the manly man. Oh, yeah. The alpha oh, they male. open the doors. And think about this. You know, yeah, they open the door, you know, for, for their wives or for their girlfriends. And the wives suddenly, you know, no. They treat their wives or they treat their girlfriends before they become their wives a lot differently when they become their wives. I've seen this happen more and more. I've just seen this happen. And, and it's, it's, that has to that has to stem from the way someone was raised as a child. Uh, no, I know I, my I, grandma. I think it stems from <laughs> I'd get head slapped if I didn't open doors, pull out chairs, and well, that stuck with me. Yeah, uh, yeah. even as I'm married, it, it doesn't it has not changed. But but if you're a man out there listening to this, and we have we have true men out there, okay? I mean, men like Officer Sean, for example. You don't think that guy's a that guy's got more testosterone than than most? <laughs> yeah, I've seen a video. Let me tell you something. He, yeah, he does. Well, this happened to me a couple of years ago. This is really personal, so I'm, I'm going to kind of cut this short and leave a lot out of this. Um. It's interesting because there was a situation, but it was about three years ago. Uh, my wife found herself in a position where she was getting pummeled verbally by someone, and it involved family business. And I was there. And this, to me, is and I, I was—I don't know what made me think about this today, but. I, I was introspective, I guess, today, and I was thinking, I, I, my mind drifted back to that. In preparation of tonight's program, I was, I was thinking, oh, you know, the the uh, the way men treat or should treat their wives. Well, she was getting pummeled, and I was with her on this. This was a business deal uh, that it was a family business deal. It was family involved. So you know how touchy that is, right? And she was just getting nailed. And she, I, I, I listened to this, this idiot, this guy. I listened to him for a minute, two minutes. And I could see my wife, you know, I could see my wife getting really angry. And I just sat there. I looked at him. Yeah, but that look. You know what I'm talking about? That look. And he's going on and on and on. And he's getting really nasty. My wife whispers in my ear, "Why aren't you? Why aren't you helping? Why aren't you coming to my aid?" I whispered back, "Wait." Another minute or two goes by, just banging, 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 and she she said, <laughs> she whispers back in my ear, "How long do I have to take this? What, what am I waiting for?" And I'm sitting there, and, and I'm watching this guy. Now I'm getting really, I'm getting really angry. Okay, angry is in my rearview mirror now. Okay, I'm about ready to take the table and flop it. Luckily, well, I didn't. 
But you know, guys, you, you know that feeling, right? That, that goes from the, your, the tip of your mm-hmm. spine up to the back of your neck, and, and you, you can feel it in your bones and your blood and your psyche. Keep it up. In your eyes, you feel it in your eyes. And, and that you vein, you know, tense. pops and the blood your, spatters all over the wall. <laughs> you feel your veins in your head tense up right. and your hair get tight and, uh, yeah. So, you know, so I let it go on just for about another 30, another 30 seconds. <clears throat> and I looked at him. And no, I just, I just said basically two words to him. No, not those two words. Love you? No. I said, get out. He said, what? I said, get out. He made a tactical error when he said something else. The reason... I'm telling you this. There's a time and place when you act and when you speak and when you don't speak. You see, one of the things that was going on at that time that my wife didn't know about, the other guy didn't know about, we were in a in an area, in a location that allowed audio, video recording. And as painful as it was to sit there and to, to not come to the, uh, not obviously come to the aid of my wife, um, proved to be extremely and critically helpful. Now, that's not to say that after, that after this, we, we obtained the necessary evidence, documentation. It's not to say that I didn't have my, I, I didn't, I did not, it's not to say I didn't do anything, because I did. But, but, but we had already gotten what we needed to get to make our case. I said all that, maybe that was anticlimactic, but I said all that to say this. There's a time and a place. But husbands, you better come to the aid of your wives. If someone is beaten on them verbally or physically or whatever, but especially, and even verbally, if someone is taking them to task, it hurts when, when they look at you and say, or whisper in your ear and say, what are you waiting for? Why aren't you coming to my assistance? You better have a damn good answer why you're not stepping up. And that, that you know, Again, I don't know if that was anticlimactic. It, it made sense to me this morning when I was thinking about it. Um, the other thing. What are you laughing at? I was just thinking if I'm the one verbally berating my wife, <laughs> uh, that's why I didn't step into her aid. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, I get that. But, but, but you know, we, we I, folks, we have. And, and I was actually thinking of you. I, when you get in one of your moods, you don't berate your wife or anything, but you just yell in general <laughs> to the dog, to the, uh, the insects outside. Yeah, I, I, I've got, I've got a, I've got a, I've got to work on that. I gotta work on that. I no, do. You've been a lot better. 
and I twitch a lot. And I take medication, or I'm blow darts, or blow darts, you know. Um, what we did is is put the grape powder in instead of the purple stick powder. And he doesn't aren't, know it yet. Everything looks like everything looks like noodles. <laughs> aren't the flowers lovely? You know, no, it, it's but see, we are to come to the aid and assistance of our loved ones, and and, and we are we are to do so. Um, we are to do so at the proper time and the proper and but make sure, folks, make sure, guys, make sure that you do it right. And you're effective in what you do. And I just wanted to say that. Look, folks, uh, we have Iranian ships harassing U.S. aircraft or U.S. Uh, ships. Mm-hmm. Iranian boats harassing U.S. Uh, ships. Can you believe this? Defense officials confirmed today that the Iranian regime attempted to intercept a U.S. destroyer in the Straits of Strait of Hormuz. He had four Iranian ships harassed and carried out a high-speed intercept in the Strait of Hormuz. Why aren't they at the bottom of the Strait of Hormuz? Valerie Jarrett? Why aren't they at the... There, I'm twitching. No, seriously. I haven't. Seriously. I have not been able to verify any of this, and this is just my own suspicion. Uh, last week, uh, something we, for, we didn't get a chance to cover was that China had launched these new quantum satellites quantum communication satellites um, into orbit and these are satellites that are supposed to keep away any and all hacking uh, abilities or interception of communications they're supposed to be able to relay messages so to what? strategic um, locations and and have no uh, fear of those messages being intercepted okay now we know that China, Iran, and Russia has kind of come together in, as a military and political alliance in the Middle East, specifically with Syria, and uh, more vaguely with the economic uh, restructuring in the East that they're doing. But I wonder what, if any, of China's new technolo- uh, technology that they've been launching, is if they're sharing that with Iran and giving them the ability to use this um, possibly, yeah. yeah. I mean, there there has been discussion, and this goes back to the Clinton, the the you know Bubba, <clears throat> Bill on Sachs. Okay, uh, this goes back to that administration when the remember Charlie Tree, remember all of the the nefarious dealings with Bubba and the sale of our satellite technology, rocket uh, technology, Laurel Corporation. Remember all that stuff, folks. Remember what was taking place. So, so yeah, this is nothing new, and um, the um, yeah, th- this is this is just this shows, I believe, this shows when you have four Iranian ships able to harass a U.S. destroyer in the Strait of Hormuz. What does that say about the petrodollar? About the strength of the petrodollar? Insofar as the the guarantee safety. The only thing holding up the petrodollar is the safety that that our military yeah. um, can afford it. So this is this is unbelievable, you know. And you know, while we're talking about money, one uh, by one, central banks are beginning to lose right. their financial security. Um, and now it's been uh, talked about that 
The feds have admitted, actually, another $4 trillion will be needed in another quantitative easing round to offset the economic shock that they are facing. A Fed staff working paper released over this last weekend titled, Gauging the Ability of the FOMC to Respond to Future Recessions. It was penned by the Deputy Director of the Division of Research and Statistics at the Fed, in which the author concludes... Uh, simulations of the FRB, Federal Reserve Bank, U.S. model of a severe recession suggests that a large-scale asset purchase and forward guidance about the future path of federal funds rate should be able to provide enough additional accommodations to fully uh, compensate for the limited cut to short-term interest rates, um, but probably not, uh, not all. Uh, they go on to say. However, they say that new rounds of quantitative easing would be needed. First, two, uh, two trillion at first, followed by another four trillion in, in the economy. Uh, they say which a shock to the economy leads to an additional quantitative easing at first of two trillion dollars or a worst-case scenario, $4 trillion, effectively doubling the current size of the Fed's balance sheet. And the article goes on to continue that the $4 trillion uh, of quantitative easing is um, startling uh, 2% of the QE. $2 trillion is not enough to get long rates down uh, for far less uh, enough to offset the shock. So any kind of bank shock, they say not even $2 trillion being printed out of thin air is enough. So I just want to get this straight because for the old, well, old shriveled up, crusty old women with knitting needles, one cent bottom Hattiesburg, line, Mississippi. You're gonna to have to, you're gonna to have to count the, you have to draw this slowly with crayon, okay? Even with so they can get this. a four trillion dollar influx <clears throat> of of cash through quantitative easing, they still have almost no ability to offset any type of shock under the current circumstances in our financial it. system. So we're, basically, we're we're toast. I mean, no, new, yeah, nothing I, new I, I as mean, far as news, but right. But uh, they also talked about the um, the interest rates, the Treasury bond yield rates, and you know the Treasury bonds are supposed to be one of the most uh, supposed to be the safest exactly. investment in exactly. the world. And in the last two weeks, there have been more countries pulling out of U.S. Treasuries than any time since the early 1970s. All right. And we're in a different type of atmosphere than we were in the 1970s. You think? I mean... You think? I mean... We've had years of quantitative easing. We have an inflated stock market. The money is worth 98 to 99% less than it was 100 years ago. For some reason, either through the paper markets of precious metals or through just direct manipulation of the metals, the price of metals do not reflect the actual worth versus paper money. Because if we were to look at, uh, as I said, the value of the dollar in 1913, we'll say it was 100%. Today it's uh, 2% to 1% of that value 100 years ago. Now, gold and silver have historically... From the from the beginning of time, have been used as money. We were taken off the gold standard. The prices were changed and able to be manipulated. 
and now they've created new markets like the paper markets, where you have no tangible gold. You have a piece of paper saying you own gold, which has led to um, a, a false surplus, if you will, in precious metals. I, I want to go back here because, folks, past is prologue, and, and a look back in time, I don't know. We don't have to do the flash. You want to do the flash? All right. Pass this prologue, I guess. Or pick one. What do you think, Eric? Eric, the tech is carefully looking here. All right. Put a bing. I'm taking a closer look and understanding the past is prologue. It was... It was a Sunday night in August of 1971. What Joe was talking about there, what Joe was talking about, think about this now, the, the trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars, the debt, the, the monetary standard, and, of course, Bretton Woods and all of this. But one thing that an anniversary passed this year that no one said a word about 45 years ago, August 15th, 1971. Richard Milhouse Nixon came on the tube interrupting, I think it was Bonanza or Ponderosa, one of those television programs airing on a Sunday night. August 15th, 1971. And he, this after he consulted the Federal Reserve Chairman Arthur Burns, an incoming Treasury Secretary John Connolly and the Undersecretary for International Monetary Affairs and Future Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. See what happened. It was on the afternoon of August 13th, 1971. These folks, along with a dozen other people, high-ranking White House and Treasury advisors, met secretly with Nixon at Camp David. And they said, hey, Dick, guess what? <laughs> We're in trouble. Our money supply, we're in trouble. You see, by 1971, the money supply had increased by 10%. By May 1971, West Germany left the Bretton Woods system, unwilling to revalue their, the Deutsche, Deutsche Mark. In the following three months, just to give you some backdrop, the move strengthened the, its economy, or the, uh, the, well, the move itself strengthened the German economy. But at the same time, the dollar dropped 7.5% against the Deutsche, Deutsche Mark. Now, other nations began to demand the redemption of their dollars for gold. Remember? Bretton Woods, okay. Well, okay. Switzerland, they redeemed $50 million in July. Well, that was a lot of money back then, $50 million at the time. France acquired $191 million in gold. And on August 5th, 1971, the U.S. Congress released a report recommending the devaluation of the dollar in an effort to protect the dollar against foreign price gougers. No, these people just wanted the money in gold like we promised them. On August 9th, 1971, remember this? The dollar dropped in value against all European currencies. Switzerland left Bretton Woods Agreement, and the pressure to intensify on the United States to leave Bretton Woods was great. So, uh, that said, Nixon called up all of these financial luminaries, these Keynesian economists, and said, hey, what do we what do? We do? Now, Volcker, you might say, oh, wait a minute, you know, he, he's an Austrian. Isn't he Austrian, though? Well, 
Go back to 1971. So, there's a meeting that took place on Friday the 13th of August, 1971. And you might, and you might ask yourself, why is this important? Because it gives you the context of what we're seeing today. Nixon directed Treasury Secretary Connolly to suspend, with certain exceptions, the convertibility of the dollar into gold. Did you know that before that you could take the dollar or the gold dollars and get gold? Okay. Ordering the gold window to be closed, such a foreign governments could no longer exchange their dollars for gold. Nixon issued Executive Order 11615. 11615. You got that? pursuant to the Economic Stabilization Act of 1970, the previous year, which imposed a 90-day wage and price freeze to counter inflation. Remember that? No? <laughs> I guess I'm old. Hmm. This is the first time in U.S. government, never that the U.S. government enacted wage and price control since World War II, and then a surcharge of 10% was set to ensure that American products would not be at a disadvantage because of the ex, uh, expected fluctuation in the dollars between in the exchange rates between the foreign currency and American currency, and uh, you get the idea. So he goes on TV August 15th, Sunday before the markets opened, and said, and I'm going to quote this now. Here's what I'm going to, here's what I'm going to say. I'm not going to quote this. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say this. He, he, he took us off the gold standard. Um, and said ultimately the effect of this action, in other words, was to stabilize the dollar. Yeah, through the, the Ponzi scheme which we have today. Now, the Americans listening to this and were more upset over the interruption of their their favorite Western than they were anything else because they didn't understand it. <clears throat> I remember, I remember this too. I do remember that day in August 1971. And I remember the reaction of my parents. Which, well, I'm not going to get into that, but <laughs> I mean, I remember this, but they, they felt that the government was saving them from the price gouges and foreign cause exchange, uh, foreign cause exchange prices. Nixon had, Nixon convinced the American public that no, this was this was hey, you know what? It's the bad people over there. This is why we have to do it. No, it was the spending over here through entitlement programs, through the Keynesian economic system. And and I would urge if you want a homework assignment, read up on John Maynard Keynes, K E Y N E S. Oh yeah, do your homework on that. And the Keynesian economic system. Why is it called Keynesian? Keynesian. Huh? Absolutely. Cain. With a C. Anyway. We got, uh, we're coming up against the top of the, or top break of yes, the segment. Took that when we come back, we're going to be hitting news and, uh, other important information. Some interesting, uh, tidbits here before we go to the break. Senator Harry Reid calls Benghazi mother crazy. Remember Patty Smith? Yesterday <laughs> Harry Reid met with... That? Harry Reid? Yeah, yesterday oh, he met God with uh, the Reno Gazette Journal editorial board. During the meeting, Reid attacked Patty Smith, the mother of the Benghazi victim uh, hero, Sean Smith, calling the grieving mother crazy for Harry, her Harry Reid would have Hillary another Clinton. black eye. Let me tell you what. Remember when Harry Reid was walking around with a couple of black eyes and yeah. you know, he fell down on his, you know, fell down with boom? He'd be walking around with, uh, yeah, I'm saying this. 
<laughs> yeah, I'd give them the black eye if that was my mom or my sister or my mother or my wife. You you going to talk to me like that? Call me crazy? It's come out about Huma Abedin. Uh, she says Jews are adept at working the American political system as she is... Uh, an award winner in a Muslim magazine for being in the Muslim American with her accomplishments. <laughs> this and more when we come back on the other side. Stay with us. Twitching. The Hagman and Hagman Report coming to you live from our radio and television studios here in beautiful northwest Pennsylvania for a final segment. I just got something to say. You know, I was talking to Eric the Tech during the break. Eric the Tech is is a man who's well worth his weight in gold. That's right, as we all are, but he's extra special. And um, he, he's our tech tech guy, Eric the Tech. He's all mic'd up. How you doing, Eric? Not, not, not. You didn't come over my headset. That's all right. My ears. All right. But a couple of things. I got a message. I got a message. I don't even know how to do this. You'll know. You'll you'll know who you are. You'll know who you are. <laughs> you'll know if you're the intended. Your first name. I don't know why. Well, I do know why, but I, I don't know why I'm doing it this way. Her name is Brenda. And you're from this area. When I say this area, I'm talking about a big swath of this area. you got to think about that. Big swath. Send me an email. Send me an email. 1992, 93, 94, 90, uh, somewhere in there. I've, I've got some information for you. Pretty cryptic, huh? No, I don't want to have 2,500 Brenda's emailing me. You'll know who you're talking about, or you'll know who I'm talking to. Um, <clears throat> I'm doing an investigation, and, and I, I've got, I think I, I just need some clarification, but I might have some information for you. How's that? I mean, using our airwaves to Send out. No, it's not that. It's a, it's business. All right. Uh, but Eric the tech told me during the break, and, and I just want to tell you, you know, it's interesting because we're, we're being censored by, by Google. Judy McLeod of Canada Free Press says, points it out. I mean, it points out the censorship. It's clear. Bob, Maggie, thank you so much for the email. But we're getting dinged every day. We buy. The music that you hear is ours. Mm-hmm. The music that we play, we have a license to play. Mm-hmm. Or it's Eric the Tech or Joe Stahl or any number of people that create this music. And it's a damn shame. It's shameful that, that this monetary, Babylonian monetary system out there it's penalizing us. We're playing music beyond. Yeah. 
under a, co- uh, a copyright, false version. copyright right. violation. See, I look at this as the new censorship, or as a variation of censorship, because they take away your, they take away any sliver of income that we might have from our shows. <laughs> and, and let me say this. From when we started YouTube to right now, even though the number of subscribers have doubled, even though the viewers have quadrupled, the income has been cut by like four fifths. <laughs> and you look at the numbers. It's not much you, to you look at with. the live views. You look at the you look at the uh, archive views, and you think, "Wow, that's a, that's a lot." No, it's not. It's not even. You can look at the back end, and it's not even reflective of the true numbers. We've got the true numbers. That, those aren't the true numbers. <laughs> Nowhere near the true numbers. Anyway, I just want... I, when you do a show and, you know, uh, 10 hours after it's done, it's at 35,000 views, and the next day you look at it and it says 510, there's issues there. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of issues. But but enough with our complaints and personal classifieds, right? No, it is rather important, and uh, I think people people who are close to me know what, what what I've been involved with, and I just got. Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. And, you know, and no, 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 I don't need any. No, I'm gonna stop there. Well, let's get. I'm not gonna say another word because the next sentence I say will be something really. You know, I'm gonna have to repent for. So you go ahead and let's let's start on the news. Well, we got news from. Uh, I don't know, the last five days or so, some important headlines we're going to hit on. Um, first off, I want to start with this. World Health Organization manual directing authorities on how to respond to vaccine deniers in public. The endlessly increasing vaccine push on the public at the behest of the pharmaceutical companies can be looked at as nothing more than a psychological operation or PSYOP. The article goes on to cite the World Health Organization's latest document, Best Practice Guidance, First Edition, How to Respond to Vocal Vaccine Deniers in Public. The SV40, vac- SV40 vaccine, cancer-laden polio vaccine. Remember the, remember the commercials where they were the little sugar cubes and the little cups and they'd give you a drink with the sugar cubes? The, 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 the government knew, and, and you can ask... Uh, uh, Judith Very Baker, uh, author of Me and Lee, uh, Dr. Mary Sherman, who was murdered back in the 60s, uh, right after Kennedy was assassinated, Dr. Mary's Monkey by Ed Haslam. Uh, you, during that time, um, the, the, the polio vaccinations were infected with a cancer virus, SV40, SV40. And the government knew about this. There were kids in iron lungs, kids that were in excruciating pain, yet the government got on the airwaves and said, take this vaccine, knowing it was contaminated. Contaminated! And they did this to us. Now this, go on. What's um, alarming about this paper, this PSYOP paper on how to force vaccinations on people in the public who do not want them, this document addresses science denialism for health authorities in the public venue. And it goes on to state those who question science and experts are chopped into three categories. One, a vaccine refuser. Two, a vaccine skeptic. Or three, a vaccine uh, continuum. The vaccine denier refers to a member of a subgroup at the extreme end of the hesitancy continuum. Now, 
what it says here is uh, when it comes to the corporate bottom line, the pharmaceutical company lobbyist focuses on the politician or government official that can persuade the people and maneuver around and through the stopgap measurements to remove medical and health freedom. To these ends, the World Health Organization has created a graphic to address the probability to change one's mind in vaccine acceptance. Yeah, we we don't we don't have to know what's in the food we eat or stuff we drink. No, dark act. Remember that. It, it blows my mind. The very people, some of the very people who are who are just incredibly upset over the passage or non-passage of the dark act, or, or the not not having the the companies. To, not demanding them to be forthright with what the contents of their food are, are the very same. Some of the very same people who are kind of a, a schizophrenic on this issue. What, what's up with that? Well, this document, uh, and I'm just reading some of the cliff notes here, goes on to caution public health officials uh, when dealing with anti-vaccination or anti-science people, stating that beware that your uh, your that your personal safety may be in jeopardy. And therefore, the vaccine must or may be needed to be administered by force. Administered by force. That's right. We're going to hold you down, and we're going to give. No, you and know they've what? They've done so we're in hospitals. Hold your kid down. They've done so in hospitals. And um, when I had my, I had a surgery on July 6 on my lower back, and after the surgery for I think three different days within two weeks, a nurse would come to the house to check the the wound and, and change the bandage and make sure everything was all right. And one of the nurses we talked to, my wife and I, uh, told us a story that we've heard many times coming from other parts of the country and other stories on the Internet, which is she had to take certain vaccines and has to each year, otherwise she loses her job. My question is, how long until that uh, relates from only health workers to food service workers or all workers in general? You want your, uh, you want a job? Do you want your paycheck? You're gonna need to get a vaccine. Do you want to, it's almost like the mark of the beast type mentality. Do you want to be a part of society or not? If so, you need to take this vaccine. And why do you think they have these programs that they run at the drugstores? You ever notice those big signs at CVS's or these other drugstores that say, oh, you know, free flu shot? Yeah, my doctor or ten dollars off uh, mm-hmm. your purchase at this drugstore with a, with a, a flu shot today. I, I just I just tell them I got my flu. They ask I got my flu shot. Oh, yeah, Last I time it. I was there, I got the doctor asked me, and I said I didn't want one. He asked me why, and I actually cited uh, some of what Doctor Ted Breuer had mentioned on our show about the ingredient. I don't remember off the top of my head now. I did then. Um, about yeah. the two major ingredients that were inside flu shots that should not and have no purpose being there. And the doctor basically told me I was crazy. And I was fine with that because, you well, know, whatever. You know, it, it, folks, we're, look, we're going to have a choice to make. It's not going to be pleasant. And as Chuck, saying, Chuck you, Baldwin said, you bring your needle, I'll bring my my gun. gun. We'll see which one leaves a bigger hole. That's right. And there you go. Because I'm not, we are not going to be subjugated to this. And people might get tired of hearing me say that, but seriously, we're not going to live in, in, in this fashion. No. And, uh, you're not going to force no. vaccines on us. You're no. not going to no. force your will upon us. 
just because you want it that way. Over, you can you can inject me with a vaccine over <laughs> when my body's lying there dead on the ground. I have no problem then. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, but um, that that's vaccine news. They're, yeah. they're pounding down on. They're, they're drilling down on this really hard. Uh, a few things. One natural disaster, one terrorist attack, one I hit before we run out of time tonight. In Italy, there has been a number of earthquakes. Up to 160 are dead. Um, Italy mourns quake victims as death toll approaches 160. Researchers continue to search for survivors in central Italian towns devastated by a 6.2 magnitude earthquake as the number of victims rose to 159 on Wednesday night. Now, since then, there's been another 4.0 magnitude earthquake um, since the uh, just after the first one. And the death toll is expected to continue to rise. And some are asking, is this a precursor to what could be a even larger quake? Um, many towns are, are devastated and left completely in ruins. And uh, I would just say that, you know, keep the people of Italy in your prayers as they continue to go through a swarm of quakes, two of which caused tremendous amount of damage. And uh, in other international news, one dead, 25 injured as a gunman attacks a U.S. embassy in Cabal. Um, yeah. I'm waiting for this to load here. Well, it, this goes along with, the, and you might be hearing about this, that this goes right along with the Turkey military launching an operation uh, to uh, Jarbalus in Syria with U.S. air support. Now, there's this talk of this U.S.-led coalition forces in operation using uh, Turkey getting involved in this now. But the but the real story here is that this coalition, define this coalition, because the U.N. hasn't authorized a, a multi, multinational coalition. No, the U.S. Congress hasn't. The alliance of Sunnis with the U.S. human shield military mixed in. What is that? It's not a coalition. It's a gang. I well, mean, it's a few not things a coalition. Going on in the Middle East, one Stan <clears> talks <throat> about the 34 Muslim nations that surround Israel that have created an alliance or coalition. Then, separately from that, you have Russia, China, Iran, and Syria forming a coalition. Some would call the Axis of Evil. Um, I would call it the Countries Against the New World Order. But. Uh, if what they're doing is good or bad, uh, we still have yet to see the results as the military buildup on Ukraine continues to increase unnerving. So, wait, 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 don't go to Ukraine yet because back to, back to the operation we're just referenced. Go back and listen to, uh, Sarge Sangari from Monday, mm-hmm. or the, uh, August 23rd, I believe it was, right? Yeah. No, 22nd. I don't know. What, yeah, it's 24th, so the 22nd. Okay, so yeah. go back and listen to that and listen to, he's head of the Assyrian uh, well, he's a, he's a retired U.S. lieutenant colonel from the U.S. military involved with the Assyrian army, Assyrian Christian army. Yep. And we had talked to somebody. Imagine this. I mean, here's a guy in, in, in Iraq, Mosul, fighting ISIS. He's got a cell phone in one hand and an AR in the other hand, uh, on, on radio. Yeah. And, and uh, by the way, I got an email saying, can't hear him. Really, that, that wind is annoying, isn't it? I, I, you know, some some days you just want to take your head and bang, bang, bang. Yeah, anyway, no, uh, right, it so was a, a pleasure for the, for them to come on and an honor to have them on, and and it shows that how much is needed in this fight in the Middle East, how much has been taken away 
from so many families over there uh, through senseless violence. We say it's senseless. The enemy knows it's part of its agenda, and it will continue until it's ended one way or the other. Now, there was a stabbing in Brussels the other day. A yes, woman, there was. A woman shot by police after attacking three bus passengers with a machete. Now, what makes this interesting is this was a uh, Muslim woman who attacked three separate people with a machete, two seriously wounded, and she was shot, uh, according to the Belgian media. Now, what the media there is reporting is that this had nothing to do with a re- with religion. She was suffering from psychological disorders. At this stage, it is not being treated as a terrorism. As terrorism. No, they're all mentally ill, right? They're this incident illness. was met with large police response and secure perimeter were set up at the scene. Yes. Brussels remains on high alert after the coordinated terror attacks on the city in March this year and in the wake of the Paris attacks. But this most recent attack where three people were stabbed with machetes is being said that it was not a terror attack. It was uh, a psychological breakdown by a Muslim woman. Right. It just she you know the the psychological breakdown was and, really the behind it. The, the fact that she was Muslim and shouting Alu Akbar and you know <laughs> Well see this uh, comes on the heels of the, the heat Merkel's been getting. Uh, right. From the, the fly in at night of the extra refugees that they let in above the, the million plus they let in through the front door. Don't, don't talk about uh, that. <laughs> yeah. And then um uh, switching gears here. Do we have to? Because yes we do. This is very important. All right. Um, this is on the Daily Caller website. <laughs> Transgenderism, okay. not supported by scientific evidence. Really? Wow. So the XY chromosome thing still stands, right? XXY. Popular culture and many of the leading media organizations have bought wholeheartedly into the idea that gender identity is something distinct from one's biological sex. That a man could be born into a woman's body or vice versa. Such beliefs have no grounds in any credible scientific evidence. Oh, wait a minute. This now, according to a report published by the Atlantic. On you. Oh, this is a, uh, reported in a journal, the New Atlantis. So if people want to take up wait a uh, minute. issue no, with New this. New Atlantis or New Atlantic? They say Atlantis, but it's, it might be it's a New Atlantic. Arizona right. State University professor of statistics and biostatistics, <sighs> Mr. Lawrence Mayer, and John Hopkins University Medical School professor Paul McHugh co-authored the report, which examined top peer-reviewed studies in the biological, psychological, and social sciences. Examining research from the biological and social sciences, this report shows that some of the most frequently heard claims about sexuality and gender are not supported by scientific evidence. Homophobic son of a gun. You just can't face the music, you know. So, so the guys, so when I wake up, or, or what, not me, believe me, uh, so, so when Eric or somebody wakes up and says, I just identify with being a woman today. Okay, Eric. Yeah, there's no evidence that suggests that. (laughs) They go on to say an area of particular concern involves medical interventions for gender non-conforming youth. They are increasingly receiving therapies to affirm their felt genders. See. And even hormone treatments or surgical modification at young ages. So, so we have genital genital mutilation 
What happened to what's his name? Uh, Bruce Jenner, the Caitlin. guy that we just Caitlin, right? Cat. So, so what? 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 What happened to him was general mutilation, or didn't he? Get I don't his know thing, if he got his. You know, but he's regretted uh, becoming a woman, whacked off. a man, woman. Uh, since oh, that's a poor choice of words. I'm sorry, but, but yeah, um, all right. It goes on to say, while there is evidence that biological factors such as genes and hormones are associated with sexual behaviors and attractions, there are no compelling explanations for human sexual orientation. And they even go on to state that individuals uh, have been identified by researchers as having neurological problems when dealing, and, and problems with structures of the brain, when dealing with homosexual and heterosexual uh, differences. Wow. Well, okay, so, but, but for every scientific study, it seems like we have another one that'll say something different. It, that, it's kind of like... Well, this is the first I've seen that actually well, goes against the 87 gender identities that one could have. Um, right. One for each day of the, of the three-month period. One for, one for each day of the quarter. <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it, so the, the relevance of this to today's you know, what does it matter, is this. We are looking at, really, evidence here that, that is cited by the Daily Caller from a scientific study saying there's no scientific basis for transgenderism. Yeah. It's a behavioral attribute. It's or characteristic. It is not one that's rooted in one's identity, physiological identity. So, um, yeah, take stick that in your pipe and smoke it, all right? Because it, it is, it, it's a behavioral characteristic, and this behavioral characteristic is um, shameful. Shame on us. Shame on us. The uh, Pew poll that you referenced earlier is something that we should talk about. Yes. Americans giving up on God and miracles, yep. according to a latest Pew poll, half of Americans mm-hmm. who have left their church no longer believe in God, leading a surge of nearly one quarter of the nation who have no affiliation with any religion, according to a new survey, Wednesday, you know, the Pew Research Center. Wait a second, I drove down in that, Joe, and I I read through the excuses because you, when you look at that article, you can you can go to the actual Pew uh, survey, and mm-hmm. I don't want to interrupt you, but I'll just say this: there's a lot of want for leadership in the Christian community, and. Did you hear what I said? The Christian community is, is basically without leadership and without any direction and without any sensibilities right now. Uh, moral and so what I see here, and and I'm going to leave it to the, the information. But what I see here are a lot of people. The reason they're not going to church, the reason they're giving up on God, is not because they disbelieve, or not because for no other reason except when you look at the look at the entire poll and it's going to take you an hour maybe an hour and a half to really go through it because there's so many different angles to it 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 shows a failure of christian leadership here in this country go ahead yeah and in some of the examples of why people are unaffiliated with religion um some are uh too many christians doing unchristian things um which that is being human but um Learning about evolution when I went away to college is another one. Religion is the opiate of the people. I think Joseph well, Stalin said that. That's my favorite quote uh, for disbelief. <laughs> Rational thought makes religion go out the window. The second um, quote. Some other ones. Uh, I see organized religious groups as more divisive than uniting. And I go. it goes on to say, because I think religion is not a religion anymore, it's a business, it's all about money. That's 
true in, in many cases. Another example or excuse is the clergy sex abuse scandal or and or the church's teachings on homosexuality. Um, in my opinion, a great reason to leave the church, not to leave God, though. And I think we need to, to differentiate and help people like this if we ever come across them, those who are uh, leaving the church, but not only leaving the church, are leaving the Lord behind, that are leaving God behind. Because, yes, a lot or most of these issues that I'm reading and, and comments I'm reading as to why they are people are leaving the church have nothing to do with a personal relationship between them and God. It has to do with the behaviors they see of other Christians, of the churches, the uh, belief systems that the churches have incorporated that revolve around the world and not of God. I think it is because the church has become too assimilated with the world and the preachers have changed the message of God into a message of a lie and that is you know some of the main reasons but obviously in this age of apostasy there are going to be people who not only leave the church but leave and give up on God they believe God is dead they read these philosophers and their and their thoughts and uh, from Plato to uh, Nietzsche and and you know, Nietzsche was Nietzsche went insane. Just yeah, so he, you know that, he, uh, right? and he, he wasn't. In sane. the end, he was talking to his horse. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that's all he was doing with his horse. But <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, that's what happened. Uh, I mean, Nietzsche was one cracked up. Guy. I, mean, I mean, look at uh, who is it? Isaac Newton, one of the smartest scientists uh, ever in the history of the world. You know, died eating mercury, trying to turn lead into gold. Uh, these yeah, well, some of the smartest people. It's a it's a thin line between you know genius and insanity. Yeah, but most people don't cross that line. Of uh, pillows, pantsuits, and pickles. That's my article puppet on strings. Uh, puppet strings. That well, might be I next. Should have put that in there. No, that might be next. Uh, that might be. Yeah, go ahead and uh, yeah, the marionettes, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, Basically, that's what she is now. Anyway, comment on Canada Free Press if you if you so desire, because that, that does elevate it in the search engines, and we fight against censorship that way. But this article in particular, it's kind of a pithy article. Um, yes, pithy. Uh, it's um, getting pounded. Before we we end the night, yeah, tonight's I'm broadcast, uh, a Patrick story Woods, we mentioned yesterday way, that needs to be mentioned again today. It is official. The U.S. Occupation of Syria right. is here. There are boots on the ground. Yeah. This is a historic and dangerous <laughs> development, which only increases the chance of total war, not only in the Middle East with Syria, but with its allies, Russia, China, and now Iran, as Iran has a, up to 100,000 troops on the ground fighting ISIS, and Russia continues its drone strike campaign against ISIS, as America does as well, but the civilian count on the American side continues to rise, sadly. Interesting. Now, that'll do it for the news tonight. Quick and special announcement. Tomorrow night, for the oh whole show, boy. Patrick Wood, I don't know if you've heard of him before. If you haven't, he's the author buckle up, of saddle for battle. Watch out. Technocracy Rising. Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. Uh, that, that's I, I've quoted from that book on this show. I mean, that, I've his, read this twice. Oh my word! The dark horse of the new world order is not communism, socialism, or fascism. It is technocracy. The new international economic order, started by the Trilateral Commission, 
is not known by many names, but sustainable development is one of them. Technocracy is a movement started in the 1930s, and in this book, Patrick Wood does a masterful job in tracing technocracy's history, how it works to create a totalitarian control, and why it must be stopped, exposing the very darkest side of globalism. Yeah. Technocracy rising. Tell tell everybody you know about tomorrow because that's going to be good. And and thank you, John Robertson, for setting up this interview and for uh, Patrick Wood for tomorrow. Um, I didn't tell you this, but I talked to John today about the uh, about the issue. Couple Uh, weeks. DM. Yeah. 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 It's not a hundred percent yet, but looking good. Folks, that'll do it for us, right? Why is there no out thing on the on the big screen? I don't know. When when do we go out? Eric is slacking. All right. Uh, whoa! See what I did there. I want to thank each and every one of you for, there, for joining us tonight. Oh, drop the balloons! Thank the balloon you, Chuck mouth. Baldwin, Romans thirteen. Better Folks. open your bag of pickles or your jar of pickles. pickles. Make sure you're okay. Flying in on the sandwich spear. Never mind. <laughs> you know, you, you folks, you would not want to live with me. Let me tell you, I'm just nuts. Uh, uh, remember, if you're uh, if you're Brenda from Crawford, the county below me, from an area, just not call me. Send me an email. I got some information for you. You'll know who you are. It's back 20 years ago. That's something I need to tell you. Thanks for joining us tonight, everyone. Have a great evening.